0: Coming up next on Two Cops One Donut, uh, Rodney King. They don't know shit about Rodney King, and you were there for the litigation. What was the environment like at that time?
1: It was ugly because it was the first case that really caught media attention for a use of force, and um, you know it was it was poorly filmed, but it was filmed. It was it was a you know it was ugly. I mean it was it was it was a very ineffective arrest. Um, and, and it's interesting because if you watch the Rodney King video, and I watched it a lot, uh, especially working on the case, initially they're trying to subdue Rodney. It's very clear at some point it transitions to trying to educate Rodney. Yeah. Which which obviously constitutionally is very problematic, right? It's, long, it's not law enforcement's role to, to punish. It's law enforcement's role to, to enforce the law and arrest. And it's the judiciary's job to punish. <laughs>
0: all right welcome back Two cops one donut i am your host eric levine and today i have with me the tactical guru john becker how you doing sir
1: i'm good buddy how you doing
0: living the dream bro living the dream i actually mean it when i say that too because i'm doing podcasting which is fun as hell for me because i learn a lot and uh i still get to be a cop in a city that supports us so
1: Highly, yeah. unu- highly unusual place these days, right?
0: Highly unusual for us. But <laughs> um, if you're just tuning into this and, and you kind of wonder where the structure of this podcast is going to go, um, John and I, uh, because he is the tactical expert that he is, and um, we're going to talk about tactics and armor and things of that nature, as far as military and police go. And you're like, Eric, uh, I thought your podcast was about bridging gaps between the community and first responders. So I'm, It is, but it's also education. So if people can understand why we wear some of the air quotes, scary things that we wear, I think John's going to be able to show a little insight of why we wear, what we wear and what we choose and why sometimes function is better than what scary things look like. Uh, we have to, we have to, um, balance that as police officers, but not so much as military military is lucky. They get to wear all the cool shit and not worry about what they look like. Um, so let's jump into it. John, first and foremost, brother, where are you at right now? Uh, just outside
1: of L.A. We're about
0: 35 miles northeast
1: of L.A. in California.
0: Oh, you're a brave man for saying that out loud. On a <laughs> Born and raised, buddy. Born and raised. <laughs> um, yeah, we have signs up out here that say, don't California my Texas. Which I that, think
1: is a really reasonable position. Uh, and then when we, when we do have a tendency to move into other people's states and wreck them. So,
0: <laughs> and then when you go over to Florida, they got signs that say "Don't New York my Florida." So apparently, that's where the the big migrations are coming from.
1: Yeah, my my first indication that California was different than other states was when Californians started moving to Washington State, and there was an ad that Rainier Beard did that showed a guy with zinc on his nose and surf shorts and long blonde hair, and it just said. Take the beer and go home.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They do have some damn good beers out there. Yeah. I mean, the Uh, thing that
1: we have that nobody else has is fantastic weather. So, you know, I look at it as a weather tax, but uh, definitely not of the uh, political majority of my state.
0: Well, this is um, going to be my first trip to California. I'm going to um, San Diego for the IACP this year. So, yeah, San Diego's um, beautiful. Yeah, that's what I hear. I watched Ron Burgundy talk about it on Anchorman. So, uh, my understanding is San Diego is a Native American for whale's vagina, uh, according yeah, that, to the that, movie. That actually
1: is not correct. <laughs> oh, that's not. Yeah, that's he, not he, he was <laughs> wrong even there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Well, brother. Okay. So, you're born and raised in Cali. Um, and the line of work that you're in is kind of the opposite of California. So um, kind of give us a rundown of your upbringing. What kind of what led you to this path?
1: Yeah. So I, I grew up, you know, in Southern California, um, uh, law enforcement, and military family. Dad was Navy captain, brother, special operator and a cop. Um, grew up around the industry, but not directly in it. Um, at 17, uh, left high school early, went to college. And sat next to a girl that sold rock climbing equipment for a living and used to go climbing with them on the weekends. And she said, hey, we should start a business and sell this stuff mail order. I said, okay, yeah, sure. That sounds like fun. She flaked right away because she had a job and was going to college. And um, I started dealing with spec ops units and SWAT teams who were buying ropes and carabiners and harnesses and eights and that kind of stuff from me. Oh, okay. and, and that, that, was, that cool. was the first pull. And I was comfortable around that growing up in a law enforcement military family. Um, I was comfortable around that, that population. And so I started researching the gear because I didn't want to be a sales guy. I, I, I just, I didn't want to be kind of, you know, the, the used car sales guy selling stuff. And I quickly figured out the climbing industry, the more advanced people become as climbers, the less gear they buy. It's not a population that is really, it's not a great business model. And I started dealing with more and more tactical teams. And so I would really research the stuff I was selling them and be able to give them, you know, a good opinion on what stuff does, what it doesn't do, helping them to differentiate between products. And that led to teams coming back to me and saying, hey, you know, can you get us, uh, you know, can you get us Eagle Nylon gear? Said so I don't know anything about that. I'll call John Carver and get set up, and we'll buy our eagle from you. And that turned into, can you get us chemical agents? And and so my my rule was I would never turn jump. down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my rule was I would never turn down free training. And I was lucky enough that the guys that I met early on took me under their wing and spent a lot of time making me smart, so that I would do a better job of of serving them. But in the process, they made me better at my job across the board, and it just happened to be that the guys that took me under their wing were really the founders of SWAT in the United States. So it was Ron McCarthy and Sid Hale and Mike Hillman and John Coleman and, you know, the guys that founded the NTOA, the guys that founded Cato, uh, Sandy Wall, to, as, a, as a reference for, uh, for Texas. Um, you know, I was, I was very lucky that these guys took the time to make me smart, even though I was a civilian. And was never going to be on the job. Never had interest in being on the job. Um, I loved my relationship with my teams. And then finished college, went to law school. Um, two years in law school, I worked LAPD police litigation. So I worked on the Rodney King case. I worked on the Reginald Denny case. I worked what? on a bunch of SIS and dog bite cases.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like, honestly, the, the, the joke is that I'm tactical Forrest Gump. Uh, I have ended up in the <laughs> right place with the right people. And, uh, and, you know, the business started to grow and I got out of law school and was kind of at that point where I'm either going to continue to do the business or practice law. I passed the bar and get my license. And then I quickly realized that law enforcement litigation is insurance, you know, outside of of a privately insured context. It's like the city of Los Angeles is self-insured. We fought everything that we thought we were correct on. Outside of that, when private litigation occurs, it's an insurance company that makes a decision. And that was not something that I really wanted to do because I, I, I'm i a believer in law enforcement. And when somebody does the right thing, I really wanted to defend them. And you could see very easily how these cases were getting settled and dirtbags that were shooting cops were getting, you know, a million dollars to make the lawsuit go away. And so, I you know, we started doing military stuff and the business – grew and so I made the decision to maintain my license but but run aardvark and you know now 30 some odd years later it's been almost four decades I've been doing this because I'm 55 now um it was the right decision I've, I've had a, an amazingly blessed career and, and have worked with some of the top units in the world and um and now have an opportunity to give back both through my job and through through the podcast so it's it's fantastic
0: okay so you opened up a rabbit hole with saying that you were, you were there for the litigation of Rodney King. So these younger officers out there, um, I, I've, I've asked cops, new cops, um, you know, discussing body cameras and, and in car cameras and stuff like that. And I'll ask them, be like, well, you know what started this all right. And they're like, no, what? And I'm like, they think Michael Brown, which, yeah. which is actually true for body cameras, but, true. um, You know, they were they were a thing, but they weren't a thing. And then they were mandated, which I think was a great thing. But um, uh, Rodney King, they don't know shit about Rodney King. And you were there for the litigation. What was the environment like at that time? It was ugly because it was the first case that
1: really caught media attention for a use of force. And, um, you know, it was it was poorly filmed, but it was filmed. It was, it was a, you know, it was ugly. I mean, it was, it was, it was a very ineffective arrest. Um, and, and it's interesting because if you watch the Rodney King video and I watched it a lot, um, especially working on the case, initially they're trying to subdue Rodney. It's very clear at some point it transitions to trying to educate Rodney. Yeah. Which, which obviously constitutionally is very problematic, right? It's long, it's not law enforcement's role to, to punish. It's law enforcement's role to, to enforce the law and arrest and, it's the judiciary's job to punish. And so you watch that video, and, and there's a lot of things now looking at it with a more modern eye that you would see that, that weren't really seen at the time. But it's, it's an ugly video. Um, fortunately, Rodney was not that badly injured. I mean, that could have very easily ended in, in, in him dying. Um, but you know, retrospectively, that was one of those moments for law enforcement where, where the future of law enforcement took an inflection. Yes, and it changed the way, you know. And the thing is, yeah. law enforcement—the evolution of law enforcement, at least during my career—there's there, a gradual, progressive building of kind of social conscience and social thought, but there is a catalytic event that changes the the public's perception of uh, whether it be a tactic or equipment and it can be both positive and negative, right? Like the North Hollywood bank robbery was a positive thing for law enforcement because people all of a sudden realize like cops were significantly outgunned yeah, and, and, you know, it gave kind of this social space for patrol rifles and for more advanced tactics and starting to look at active shooter and those kinds of things, which might not have been well received prior to that but rodney king was one of those moments where the credibility of law enforcement really came into question and and the the application of force and the constitutionality of the application of force came into question and um it, i think that if you you know 100 years from now we look back and you go okay what was that moment rodney king was that moment where the public began to go hey wait a minute like this is not okay
0: yeah yeah, well it was out of sight, out of mind before. The, yeah. the cultural policing, there were, you know, the the even bad guys had the the mindset like, if I run from the cops, there's an ass whooping attached to it. Oh like, yeah. back in that day. It's not like that now. Um, but like you say, it's kinda like the you know, the rise of the Phoenix out of the ashes kind of thing. It was a tragedy. Like that shouldn't have happened. Um But at the time, if you were to talk to the police or talk to the public at the time, for the most part, if they just would have heard about that, they'd have been like that. Then he shouldn't have, you know, bad guys shouldn't be doing bad guy things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and but when you see it, that's a different story. And that's what started bringing the cameras around and getting into tactics and stuff like that, how police use force changed. And I think, like you said, we're we're it's this little slow snowball effect, you know, something bad happens. The public tells us what's going to be dictated from here on out. And, uh, we figure something out for them and go, is this good? And they're like, yep, we like that. That's, that's good. Until you get down a few years later. Now all these police cars have cameras in the cars, but why don't the cops have something on them? Look at, it could have prevented the Michael Brown thing, which was a bullshit lie. Um, and, uh, that was found out by the DOJ and all this stuff. Um, but, even though it was a lie and it ruined that one cop's career, um, you know, I, I can't help, but kind of be thankful that we kind of went through all that because I depend on that body camera. Now I, I hate, I feel naked without it. I don't like not having it. It's saved my ass more times than I can count. I've had a few fake complaints come in. Um, and they watch the body cam footage, and they're like, "Oh, would you like to be charged with falsifying, <laughs> you know, a report?" And uh, it 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 it's really worked out. So I, I like the way you put it. I like the way you put it that yeah, th- even though we've had these bad things happen, um, we in policing anyway, uh, we keep learning from it and uh, having this good inflection and in, in, in changing the way that we do things, um, tactics. The 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 robbery that you're referring to, was that L.A. that that happened in. Uh, North Hollywood, North yeah, Hollywood, okay. North Hollywood, California. Yeah, um, man, I, I every patrol car I know has a rifle and a shotgun. Yeah, you know, uh, in our department, um, specifically, uh, the officers have the option. Like, you don't have to go to a armory or anything like that. And check a, a weapon out for the day. Like, you have your own. Um, you can either have a city issued one that's yours, um, or you can go buy your own and and have a, a nicer weapon. You know, um, as long as you qualify with it. And the, uh, range guys know how to fix it if something breaks. So,
1: yeah, it's, it's funny. North Hollywood was one of those, like, like is I, I I work with the California association of tactical officers for a program called the strategic leadership program. And it's a mentorship program for about 10 handpicked tactical leaders. And one of the things that we do with that program is we go through the history special tactics. And we look at historical events starting at Texas tower and working all the way forward. Okay. And there are those catalytic turning points and North Hollywood was one of those, not only because, you know, it was the first time that that thing played out on a live TV. Like I remember watching that evolving on live TV. Uh, the guys were well armored. They had armor wrapped around their legs, their torsos, their arms. I mean, they were basically like the Michelin man and the radio traffic, I attended a debrief after the event and the radio traffic is horrifying. I mean, it is, it is most cops have a nightmare of being in a shooting and their bullets not working. And it literally goes out over the radio. Our bullets are having no effect.
0: It's working. The dream has out. come true. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
2: Fuck. Yeah, welcome,
1: oh. to your, welcome to your nightmare. And you know, they, uh, the, the, LAPD officers were going to a local gun store, B&B, and borrowing M4s. Uh, ultimately, what ended one of the guys, one of the guys kills himself. The other one, um, a few guys from LAPD, D-Platoon, heard the thing evolving, were literally picked up in running shorts. If you watch it, you'll see one of the guys is in running shorts and attack vest, um, Donnie Anderson. And they, they came and engaged the guy and it all played out on national television and i think it was a moment where everybody went oh my god yeah they need more than a than a handgun and we need the ability to respond to these kind of events in um, you know columbine had the same type of an effect right there've been these yeah, these events yeah. no some longer positive set, set up a
0: perimeter and wait and get all of everything go the active shooter you get your ass in there um so from a uh, armor perspective to help people that maybe aren't familiar, um, most pistols for a police officers are either going to be a nine millimeter, a forty, or a forty five, um, and the armor that these guys were wearing is capable of stopping all that, which is typically, from my understanding, level three armor, your soft body armor.
1: No, actually, you can you can stop those rounds with a two A armor. So the way to think of it is 2A, two A, two three A is kind of that
0: soft armor. Was two A out then? Oh
1: yeah. Yeah, two A two A, so Ridge that was the original armor was most agencies wore two A. And it's kind of a you know, the NIJ is gonna reset the standard here at some point and they need to because it's gotten very confusing. But it was two A, was below two, and then three A is below three. So it's 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 somewhat confusing. But the way to think of, of armor is split it into hard armor and soft armor. Okay. Which which is splitting it handgun rifle. Correct. Okay, so from a handgun standpoint, yeah, they were wearing I think they had level two armor. They bought a bunch of vests and turned them into pants and shirts. And, you know, I mean, you see the suits that they wore and they're on display at the LAPD museum. But you see the suits that they wore and it's they were literally wrapped up like the Michelin man. Just had armor wrapped around them.
0: Yeah. Um, Which worked really well. They took I don't know how many hundreds of rounds. I was going to say I give them credit as far as just standing through it because I've seen armor get shot and i've seen videos of other i'm not getting shot but i've seen other officers take a round into their armor and that is that is devastating to the body alone it's going to hurt i think it depends
1: on where it hits so, you think so? Uh, yeah no for sure like the, the the blunt trauma that's associated with soft armor um a lot of it depends on where the round hits And, you know, is it right over bone is, you know, like if if you get hit on the rib cage where the skin is very thin, you're going to see a more profound effect on the skin than if you get hit, you know, in the love handle. Right. Um, And, you know, or or in the pectoral muscle, there's always uh, a certain amount of damage that's inflicted by soft armor, usually a burn from the, the, the velocity being, you know, absorbed by the package and the package moving into the skin. But, oh, um, the actual skin gets burned from that. Yeah, you know, the skin, this, the the surface of the skin gets burned by the the backside of the package in a lot of cases, and you'll have a certain amount of trauma. It could be a big bruise, could be you know a tear in the skin. Um, in fact, every once in a while you will get one. I I had an agency approach me with uh, a package of another armor company, and they said this vest failed, and and our officer as a result you know was really badly hurt. And, I said, okay, well, you know, let me see. And they brought up the pictures and I looked at the pictures and I said, okay. And I said, they said, well, you know, it went through the vest. And I said, well, where'd the bullet go? And they said, well, we don't know. I said, well, they, they think it came back out. So no, it it doesn't go in the hole and come back out the hole. That's not yeah, the way it works. Physics
0: don't work that way. <laughs> and so I said,
1: you know, let me let me see the I looked at the pictures of the armor and I said, you know, if you guys cut the vest open to to find it. They said, no. And so they went to the sheriff's department. Sheriff's department cut it open. They found the bullet. So, yeah, it looks to me, you like, looking at it initially, it looks to me like you're probably going to owe this armor company an apology because I think they saved your guy's life. And it's not an armor company I like. Let's start there. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is by far one of my least favorite armor companies. Okay. Um, and, and not one that I see as, you know, consistently acting ethically. But, um, you know, it's, 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 there, was, there was a pretty substantial wound on the back of the vest and, you know, on the skin. And no hole, just kind of a wound. And they didn't understand that actually the bullet had stopped.
0: Hey y'all, Eric Levine, Two Cops, One Donut. I gotta tell you about my new sponsor, Peregrine. Yeah, like the Falcon. Peregrine is an advanced data analytics platform for public safety. Peregrine builds technology that transforms the way people and entire organizations interact with their data for decision-making and operations. The platform empowers department personnel to create and implement effective strategies, make informed decisions in critical moments, and protect their communities. Peregrine revolutionizes data integration by transforming, cleaning, and extracting meaningful connections between data from dozens of previously siloed systems. Its user-friendly tools, applications, and data visualizations enable personnel, from chiefs to investigators to analysts and patrol officers, to access crucial information and insights in the format, time frame, on the device, including mobile, that they require. Additionally, Peregrine delivers real-time, tailored insights and context to staff both in headquarters and in the field, allowing law enforcement officers to proactively address emerging situations, stay ahead of potential threats, and make better long-term operations. Decisions that impact both officers and the communities they serve. Discover more at Peregrine.io. That's P-E-R-E-G-R-I-N-E.io, and make sure you tell them two cops, one donut sent you.
1: And that the little, you know, tear in his skin was not a bullet hole, since they didn't find a bullet in him; it didn't go through him. It's like guys look at the vest, and then they did, and subsequently apologized to the company. But um, so, so to go back. Think of it as handgun, rifle, stopping handgun, and there there are some wobblers, but let's just keep it simple. Okay, uh, the majority of agencies now are either in level two or three A. Uh, the the differentiating round between those two being the forty four Magnum round. Okay, and most of the time with ballistics, stopping the bullet is not the hard part. It's stopping the bullet without too much backface. So usually, what will separate a level two package from a level three A package is not its ability to stop a 44 Magnum round; it's being able to stop it within the 44 millimeters of backface that the NIJ requires.
0: What is backface?
1: So think of the way the way that backface is tested is they take a a mannequin with Roma plastilina clay, like modeling clay mm-hmm. you, that you would play with when you were a kid, at a particular temperature and a particular density, and they put the armor over the front of it. And then they shoot the armor and and you would imagine there's a dent right. that's left behind. That's called a backface signature. And that backface signature is theoretically the dent that that would have made in your body. It's not totally representative, but at some point you just have to draw a standard. yeah, right. think of it like a qualifying standard, like it's completely random. Yep. You know, you owe you know twenty rounds at this distance. Like we're, we're just making up a standard to demonstrate proficiency, and that's kind of what Nij does. It's grounded in science. It's grounded in as much reality as they can ground it in. But at some point, you have to have a driver's test that just says, you know, if you do these things, then you get a driver's license. and If you don't, then you don't. And that's kind of how the Nij standard works. And the reason that they require backface testing initially was concerns about backface killing somebody. You know, somebody being hit, there's a lot of data of little kids getting hit in the chest with baseballs and softballs. Stopping
2: their heart.
0: Stopping their
1: heart. Yeah. And so that was the concern was we need to make sure that doesn't happen. And that's why you had trauma plates. Yep. You know, and, and that has not panned out. Uh, I am not aware of a single death caused by backface deformation. Mm. So you can say, well, backface doesn't matter. And, and I would say, no, actually, backface does matter. But the way that the NIJ defined the standard means that backface isn't a threat.
0: Ah, right.
2: Okay. So you
1: say, oh, nobody's died in a car crash in the last ten, you know, the last five years. Well, everybody's wearing seatbelts and has airbags. It doesn't mean car crashes are safer. It means we've made the car safer. Correct. Uh, and, and in this case, you've made armor safe enough that you've taken backface out of the equation. Okay. So that's that's what a backface signature is.
0: Gotcha. And as far as round capabilities, so this is this is one thing I've had to educate people on a lot is a nine mil round. Okay. People think that that's the, the baby round. Um, I'm a nine mil fan. That's my favorite round. Um, that will tear through a car that will tear through your, um, your body very easily. Um, and people think that car doors and all this stuff, uh, can stop those type of pistol rounds. Basically. Um, if a car door is not going to do it, a rifle, as you said, you got soft armor and hard armor, hard armor is for rifle rounds. Now, just imagine the capabilities of a rifle round. So can you go into the the dynamics of armor and rifle rounds? Sure. So
1: in order to stop a bullet, a bullet's got a certain amount of kinetic energy, right? It it weighs X and it's moving at Y velocity, right? It's a 158 grain boat tail hollow point bullet going at 3,000 feet a second has this many joules of energy. And in order for the bullet to stop, you have to dissipate that energy before it reaches the tensile strength of the material it's hitting, right? So if I throw a rock at a window, the window breaks because the event is too short for the glass to absorb the energy of the rock. If you think of it in terms of catching the bullet, and, and we'll use that just as a surrogate. It's it's not totally accurate, but for right now, we'll use it as a surrogate. You know, you, you, we've all been throwing a baseball hard with a bare hand. Right. Right? Sometimes it bounces off your hand. Sometimes it, it hurts like hell. <laughs> but right. in order to catch it, you've got to stop it. That's true with ballistics. So the goal with armor is to catch or dissipate the energy of a round. With a handgun around... Generally speaking, the way you're doing that is by catching it. So you are you are creating an event that is long enough with a material that is strong enough to dispose of all that energy. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, you know, the way to think of it is if you throw an egg at a wall, it breaks. If you throw an egg at a bed sheet and you hold it loosely, you'll catch the egg. Right. The same is true here. We're trying to catch the bullet. So with soft ballistics, the goal is to entangle and catch the bu- the bullet and dump the energy it has. The challenge with a rifle round is it is, you know, like if you think of a handgun round as let's just say, you know, roughly 1,100, 1,200 feet a second and a relatively heavy projectile, you know, 145 grains, 147 grains, 127 grains. So you have a a heavier object that's moving slower. With a rifle, you have a very light object, you know, 68 grains, 58 grains moving 2,300, 2,400, 3,000 feet a second. So now it's a light object that is moving extremely fast. And when it impacts, the event is very short. It's a third the time that you would have with a handgun round. It's a smaller diameter object, which means it's more likely to penetrate. And so you're having to to catch that round in a different way. So the way most rifle plates work is you're using a harder object. You're no longer trying to catch the bullet by absorbing the energy. You're trying to trap the bullet and dump the energy quickly, or you're trying to force the energy back into the bullet. So okay. if you think of, a, think of a bullet hitting a piece of steel, right? The steel's unimpressed. All the energy from the bullet goes into rebound and goes into shattering the bullet itself. In the case of ceramic, you're shattering the ceramic But you have to dump that energy in the time you have before that thing penetrates the material. And so what makes rifles hard to stop is they're small, they're fast, and they're very light.
0: Compared to the pistol round, which is not traveling near as quick.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so that's why you go to harder materials. You start getting into, you know, unidirectional polyethylenes, or you get into ceramic, or you get into steel. Although I'm not a fan of steel. Um, I mean, I like it on a bear cat. I don't like it on a person.
0: Ah, um, why
1: not? Um, Steel is prone to splattering. The the spalding? No, that's spalling. Is is that that? So spalling spalling is when a round hits an object and the energy is carried through the object to the other side. So, for instance, if you hit a rifle round into a brick wall, it will break a chunk of brick off the other side of the wall. That's spalling. Oh, okay. Splatter is think. Think of like when you shoot steel targets. Mm-hmm. If you go look at the steel targets, you'll see that the round kind of exploded and makes like a starburst. All of that is the metal from the bullet splattering out. If you think about a steel plate being on your chest, where does that splatter go?
0: To your throat. <laughs> to your throat. <laughs> yeah. So
1: it's it's you know we've I've never been a fan of steel plates. Um, ceramic, yes. Polyethylene, yes. Um, and then, like, t- to clarify even more, within rifles, the line for rifles is the M855 round.
0: That's the green tip? The green tip. Yeah.
1: So, mild steel core 7.6239 AK rounds, typical 5.56 223 rounds, uh, M193, stuff that you're going to run into, normal 223 rounds, actually relatively easy to stop with polyethylene, with like Spectra. Is a material that people are familiar with. Okay. So the line is the 855 round. That's the first significant change in ballistics. To stop the 855 round, you have to have ceramic. Oh. So that's where ceramic plates kick in.
0: Gotcha. I hated wearing ceramic plates in the military. They're so big.
1: Yes, but your threat in the military was an 855 round.
0: Right. So so you need
1: it. (laughs) right yeah
0: no i i understand unnecessary evil i just you know at the time i think things have gotten significantly lighter and smaller um since but it's, it's still almost double is it the weight is still almost
1: double yeah i mean it's it's a really light plate now uh is around you know and a polyethylene plate is around two pounds and you're going to go up to almost four three and a half to stop an 8.55 round
0: okay well shit the ones that i was issued were like Ten pounds a piece, yeah. so yeah uh, <laughs> that's that's a bargain for me. I would rather go down to four pounds than uh deal with the ten pound plates that we had. matter of fact, they're probably up in the attic weighing something down right now, but um well that yeah. was
1: also they also may have been trying to stop AP rounds, right so then the next line if if you think of rifle ballistics as three buckets, you've got what, what was originally called level three, and hopefully eventually here with the new niJ standard is gonna be called r f one. And that is all the AK rounds and typical 5.56 rounds. Okay. Bucket number two is
0: 8.55. Your armor piercing.
1: No. No? A- an 8.55 is not an AP round, although it is very good at penetrating armor. It's not designed to be an armor penetrator.
0: Uh, I thought it was.
1: Yeah. So it's 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 kind of in between. Okay. So think of that as, as kind of that second bucket. That third bucket, and, and in that second bucket, you'll have a lot of bigger rifle calibers. In the third bucket is the M2 AP round,
2: mm, which okay. is a,
1: a specific round designed to be armor pitching. And in in the current NIJ, that's a level four.
0: Yes. Right? Okay. So
1: the problem with NIJ was you have level three and level four. So you had two giant buckets. <laughs> and then, then along comes the 855 round.
0: <laughs> Screwed up their measurements.
1: Right, and you can stop it with a little bit of ceramic. It doesn't have to be as heavy as a level four, but you ended up in this kind of weird plus. And this is part of the problem with the NIJ standard all along, is they have to pick a reference round. Right. Right, like in the end, you have to pick a standard, and what they picked when they originally did it was, was a 308 round and an AP round. Neither of which, you know, you don't see an M80 round anymore, and you right. don't see an M2 AP round anymore. So now what we're hoping they're going to do and what the proposed standard is, is to actually split that into those three buckets as RF1, RF2, RF3. Okay. Um, yeah. But for most cops, it's it's a question of, do you want to stop the 855 round?
0: Yeah. And I can tell you day-to-day patrol, it's not something, I mean, I would love to stop it, but I, I can't. if I want a long lasting career, I can't be wearing that much gear all the time. I think it depends. Armor in general
1: depends on your mission set.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Right? And and so your your armor has to fit your mission set. If you tell me, hey, I'm a school resource officer, um, you have one mission set. If you say, hey, I am on, you know, the FBI hostage rescue team, you have a different mission set. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if you tell me, hey, I'm I'm an SRT team at at a military base, well, it, it, green tip is a real threat to you. Yes. Right. So, so it's kind of figuring out like, you know, I, I can, I always tell people like, I can make you completely safe. You just won't be able to move.
0: (laughs) Right. Right, I I can turn you into a
1: human, a human tank. You just won't be able to move or shoot. Um, Or (laughs) or I can, I can put you in a tactical sports bra and, and you can be killed by a 22 round. And, (laughs) And so it's like each person has to look at what is their mission threat? You know, what is their first, what's, what's the threat posed by your mission set? And then what do you run into? Yeah. Right. We always tell you, you should be able to stop your duty round, which you should be able to stop your neighboring agency's duty rounds.
2: <laughs> yeah. For obvious reasons. Yeah. Because
1: <laughs> blue on blue is usually agency <laughs> on agency. Yep. Um, and then, then what, what are you pulling off the street? And then, you know, if, if you're in a place that you, you know, there, there are a lot of kind of, you know, let's call them white trash areas of California where, you know, everybody has green tip and they have green tip because they know it goes through cop's armor. Damn. That's a different threat. That is. Right? So it's kind of look at that and then realize that you trade you trade mobility and comfort for protection. But make a conscious choice. And, and, and it doesn't mean that armor can't be scalable. So if you're working patrol, you're in soft armor all the time, and you're not wearing a rifle plate. Because it's not likely you're going to run into a rifle threat in a patrol environment. Where you will is an active shooter, bank robbery. You then need the ability to up armor. Yes. Hence, active shooter racks, you know, plate racks um, that give you the ability to quickly put on plates. Because, you know, you look at the, was it Louisville that just had the bank robbery? Um, I mean, that's a very real threat that develops very quickly.
0: Yeah. Um, that vest that you can kind of see on the ground behind me, that's got the, the, the reason I like that outer carrier is, um, I have the ability when I'm putting it, taking it on and off, I can slip a plate in there. Um, it's got a space to put one in the back, but what a lot of people don't tend to think about is unless you have a partner, you ain't getting a plate in there while you're responding to a call. No. So you you're, you're going to get one in the front. You're definitely not going to get one in the back unless you got more time.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm actually a big fan of of separate plate racks. Um for a couple of reasons. One, it it gives you the ability to quickly up armor like in seconds you can up armor, but it also gives you the ability to increase your mission capability. Yeah. Right? Because like working patrol, you don't need to carry M4 mags. Right. Going into an active shooter, you need M4 mags. Yeah. You need, you need an enhanced, like you may carry a small IFAC in patrol, but if you're going into an active shooter situation, you need an enhanced IFAC, right? You need multiple tourniquets. So what we encourage most of our agencies to do is, is view it as two separate problems. What are we going to armor our patrol officers with? And then what are we going to give them in secondary capability in the form of, you know, a long gun, additional magazines, medical kits. Uh, We have agencies that are carrying medical backpacks. Yep. Into active shooters, um, yeah, we, we saw have a TAC
0: med team. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. No,
1: and it, I tell you something. Tac meds, the the evolution of T C, has saved more cops' lives and more civilians' lives. Um, I mean, people don't realize how often cops are saving. I mean, set aside Narcan, which which you know we can debate the morality of saving people at overdose, but set set that aside, and how many people are saved by cops every day with Narcan. Yeah, The number of people in active shooter situations that are saved by patrol officers that have received TCCC training, by tactical medics, um, it is it is amazing how many people are surviving situations. At the, the IRC terrorist incident in San Bernardino, there are dozens of people who are saved by attack medic by simply saying, open their airway, get them on their side, do this, put this tourniquet here. Um, and so it it is, it is a ridiculously valuable thing for the community. And, and that's exactly where, you know, having secondary capabilities for active shooter gives a patrol officer who is a medic, the ability to quickly throw on a backpack.
0: Yeah. So part of the problem that I've run into, um, my department, they gave us, um, level four vests, uh, to, to up armor and stuff like that. The problem I have is I wear outer carrier and I wear everything up front. I got my mags. I got my radio. You know, slightly off to the side, all this stuff. The moment I want to go throw this thing on, I have covered up all of my my stuff, all my yep. tools. Um, so one of the things that departments don't necessarily have the money for is when they go throw this secondary vest on. I want that thing to be laid out, yeah, already totally. all ready to go. I want. Yep. I, I the only thing I should have to do, if anything, is. Grab my radio mic cord and plug it into a new spot. And that's all I want to have to do. 100 percent And that's um, what we that's what we
1: encourage agencies to do. Like most agencies that we work with, it, it's a common a common thing that's presented to us. Hey, we want to start an active shooter program. We need to scale up. And and I tell them, like, look at it as two different things. And yeah, some of your guys are going to carry M4 mags, they're going to carry handgun mags, whatever in patrol. This is a separate capability. So when you field your active shooter kits, field them with additional magazines, field them with medical kits, field them with, you know, with door stops, you know, if if your agency is using a clearing system, whether it's, it's paint pens or whatever, like put that stuff into that active shooter capability
0: and, and, If you're law enforcement, stop and listen to me right now. If you're a police department that does not have an LPR system, Insight is offering the first 10 agencies, that means one agency apiece, gets one camera for free. You have to tell them that two cops, one donut sent you. You heard me right. If you're a police agency that does not have an LPR system yet or does have an LPR system and you're not happy with the product you have, Insight is offering you a free camera no strings attached, and they will install it. I have 10 to give out. Tell them two cops one donut sent you, or reach out to me, and I will get you in contact. If you're a business owner or an HOA, please stop and listen to me right now. If you're just listening to the audio, do yourself a favor and watch the YouTube version of this episode to get a visual of what I'm about to tell you. I want to tell you guys about Insight LPR. It's a license plate reader. If your agency, community, or business is looking to invest in LPR to help solve and deter crime, or to make your community safer, Insight LPR has my vote of confidence. I've met with their team. They know their LPRs, guys. Uh, They're the real deal. They bring over 75 years of collective experience to building LPR cameras and the software that supports communities across the country. The other thing I really like about this team is how much they listen to law enforcement. They understand the importance of working together with law enforcement and getting their input as they build and innovate products and their service to match the needs of law enforcement. In other words, when I complain or have suggestions to make their damn camera better. They actually do it. The Insight LPR team is extremely passionate and takes pride in their product development, which makes their cameras some of the most durable cameras in the market. For the gear nerds out there, what that means is this stuff's made of military grade aluminum and is nitrogen purged, whatever that means. This design makes the cameras rugged and able to withstand harsh weather elements. Here's the big selling point for me. Their nighttime scan accuracy is higher than most of the leading competitors. In my opinion, this is what sets them apart. As we know, the majority of Crimes occur at night, so it's critical to have high scan accuracy at night. Insights cameras check the box with the nighttime plate read accuracy greater than 96%. 96%, guys. That's pretty freaking high. If your community is looking to invest in LPR technology, reach out to one of their experts today. Or reach out to me. Tell them two cops, one donut sent you. Push those logistics forward. So before you go too far, let's kind of explain that for people that don't know. So when we're searching during active shooters and we're clearing rooms and stuff so we can mark where we've already searched for the people coming up behind us, you throw down these markers, uh, whether it's a glow stick or whatever it is, and that's going to signify to the cops that come in behind you or SWAT or whoever it is, all right, this room's been cleared because an active shooter, you're moving, 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 moving. You're not stopping. Um, And then the door stops are to keep stuff behind you once you've searched closed and stuff to that nature. Am I correct on that? Yeah. Yeah. To um, keep
1: things, keep things you want closed closed and keep things you want to open open.
0: Yes. Um, cause when we come across, sometimes you're, you're searching, you're listening for the shots and trying to go to them and you got doors that are shut behind you that are locked and you can't get into them. So having the door stops there, so you don't have to worry about a threat sneaking up behind you after you've passed them. It's a, it's a good feature to have. So, um, but yeah, I, that has been one of my biggest, uh, bitches, gripes, complaints, whatever you want. Um, cause as a cop, you know, I see that we're getting this gear and I'm like, awesome, this is cool. And then, you know, you, you, you put it on, you're not putting it on over your other gear. You, cause you just, you're They're making sure it fits and you're doing all this stuff and you're not really thinking ahead. And then all of a sudden the moment comes and you're like, Oh shit, I need my gear. And I'm wearing a vest and I'm like, well, if I take this off, I'm going to miss a bunch of stuff. So let me throw it on over top of my stuff. And you don't have time to sit there and switch things over. You don't have time to do any of that. So this is things to consider for other officers out there. Maybe listen, like, think about it. Like, think about this vest, this extra up armor piece that you have. Have you really thought it through? Because I didn't. I know I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) When I got it, I I never thought of it until the moment came. And now, luckily, everything de-escalated. We didn't have to do anything. But I'm standing there just thinking, I'm like, I look stupid. Um, and I have no access to a lot of the things that I need access to.
1: No, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate thing. We, um, we lack
0: expertise
1: to for, foresight and foreshadow things. And one of the big differences between elite units and non-elite units or, or, or patrol units or whatever is the elite units prepare for specific missions and think them through. Part of the challenge for patrol officers is your mission set is literally everything from a cat stuck <laughs> in a tree wide, yep. to an active shooter, right? <laughs> yeah. like, but you get to a SWAT team or a narcotics team or, you know, you know a, a counterterrorism team. Like, yeah. you start to narrow the mission sets, which allows them to get deeper expertise.
0: That's why they walk around like this. Yes, All because the because they're walking. You gotta have swat swat
1: hands. Walkie. Yes, a hundred percent. Swatty hands are very important.
2: That is. But
1: but it's it's we these things occur very rarely, and because they occur very rarely, we don't think about them and we don't prepare for them, and we also don't learn the lessons of the last one, right? Like when Columbine happened, everybody said that'll never happen again. Yeah. And then Uvalde happened, and everybody said, "Oh my God." And that is with a lot of prep, right? I mean, the state of Texas is more prepared for active shooter. Yeah, Yeah, literally the alert center is based in Texas, right? You have one of the strongest tactical associations in the world, in Texas, with TTPOA. And still, here we are. Now, part of that is a lack of preparation. And part of it is we are down-selecting leaders in law enforcement um, who have stayed out of trouble
0: and are good managers. Thank (laughs) you. Somebody (laughs) said it.
1: No, it, it, I tell yeah. you, man. It, it. I was on a podcast a while back, and I said, you know, part of the problem right now is that we are down selecting golden retrievers and thinking we're getting Belgian Malinois.
0: Right. Yeah. You. You. It's weird to say, um, and this is just my perspective, and you know, almost 18 years of law enforcement. But I want the guy that's been in trouble at work a few times. I want oh, the yeah. guy that that's had his hand slapped out in the field for trying to do police work. And they grow from it. They know, you know, I don't want the Boy Scout to be my leader necessarily. Or if it's going to be that guy, if he has to be the face of the department, let that dude at least have the wherewithal to put the guys in charge of the units and the training that can get the job done and go say, hey, I understand this is not my skill set. I'm more of the community side, which is great but I'm going to entrust the people that are good at the other side of the the enforcement side to go do that. Cause you do need both in police work. Military is a different story, but in police work. Yeah.
1: No, I, I think that one of the problems we have in law enforcement is that the community views cops as kind of a monolith, like, you know, I want an officer who's good as a school resource officer and is, is a very nice person. And he's never rude to people and he's never aggressive yeah. until there's an active shooter. And then I want a
0: stone cold warrior. I want a Navy SEAL. Yes, I, I,
1: I, want, I <laughs> yeah. want a Navy SEAL. I want friggin' Chris Kyle to show up immediately and right. deal with that situation immediately. And, and we don't understand that golden retrievers are golden retrievers because they're nice and they're friendly and they like everybody. Right. And Belgian Malinois are Belgian Malinois because they were purpose-built. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think that as as a society, we need to start deconflicting these things. We're in this big, you know, anti-militarization of law enforcement. Like the state of California, you know, we, we tend to lead the nation in stupidity. Um, and we, you know, we have – we've passed laws to outlaw military equipment, you know, or to now – AB 481 is requiring police departments to report everything that they have that is quote unquote military equipment. Mind you, everything on that list was developed for law enforcement and the military doesn't use. (laughs) And I say that as a guy who has spent his entire life working with both law enforcement and the military. Right. And selling gear to both. So I, I know what they both do. I spend a lot of time with both types of units And, and it's, but, but it's this perception that like the gear is going to make the tactics.
2: Yeah. And
0: that is not true. So what it's been your experience so far selling to both and the type of feedback law enforcement's giving you as far as the, and I hate that I even have to ask this question about the appearance. So I I think that as a country,
1: we Are losing nuance. We're losing detail. Right. We our politicians, our media, everybody is pushing us towards black and white, right? It is, it is, it is a nine or it's a one, and there's nothing in between. And there is nothing that's a nine and nothing that's a one. Everything is in between. Everything is gray. And so we look for the stupid answer. We look for the easy thing, like, oh no, the cops look like soldiers. Cops don't look like soldiers. I mean, there are parts of the country where, yeah, cops look like soldiers. But for the most part, cops don't look like soldiers. Wearing a helmet doesn't make you a soldier. Wearing body armor doesn't make you a soldier. Driving a Bearcat, which was built for law enforcement and was in use before DOD up-armored all the Humvees, is not military equipment. It's, It's mobile cover. Right? Right? But but because we don't want to take the time to look at the subtlety and look at the complexity, we just go. Oh, they look like soldiers. Yeah. Now that said, I mean, I don't know if you've read Radley Balko's book, Rise of the Warrior Cop. Uh, if you haven't, as a police officer, you need to. It sounds from it. Yeah, every, read, every cop, every cop in the United States
0: should read that book. I think I was mandated to read that. In, I, I hope uh, so. Yeah, either it, in an academy or in my degrees. Yeah, it, it is, it is,
1: it's funny because I, I set out to read it and I thought this guy's going to be a moron and everything he says is going to be wrong. I actually agree with about 90% of what he says. I disagree on technical grounds with another 5% and I absolutely vehemently disagree with 5% of what he says. The The premise of the book is that we have changed the mindset of law enforcement in the United States and we are, we have our cops looking at themselves as soldiers as an occupying army and he goes through the history of the fourth amendment. He goes through the history and evolution of law enforcement, you know, starting with Robert Peel in London through modern times. That's sir,
0: Robert Peel, sir,
1: sir, Robert, get Peel. his title, right? I, I refuse to recognize their titles. We have 200, 200 plus years of refusing to recognize their title. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> America. Yeah. But, uh, we, we, we are not, Looking at the real issues here, which is people's complaints are not with the gear; it's with the tactics.
0: Yeah i i, I would I would agree. Um, and it's so it, it, they're always trying to change the language, and so now they say cops shouldn't be warriors; they need to be guardians. And I'm like, okay, I I get it. I'm I'm okay with that mindset because you need to have the switch. You need to know when to, you know, what do they say? Be a gardener. And a war, and a war, and gar- a gardener, and I don't remember the whole saying. A warrior in a garden. Um, you, you got to know when to turn it down. Um, and most of the time, ninety nine percent of the time for cops, it's, um, you know, just a peacekeeping mission. Um, but if you allow yourself to get too wrapped up to where I'm just a community cop, well, when shit hits the fan, you're not going to be prepared. Your mindset's not even there yet, and your mindset is. Ninety percent of the battle, in my opinion, Um, because I, 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 I agree yeah. with you. I, I totally sure shit you. don't want to look over at my partner, who has has made it up in their mind that they're this community oriented cop all the time, and they're surprised when shit hits the fan. It,
1: you know, it's interesting. I don't think that the average person, like we we are almost a victim of our own success as a country.
0: We oh, are absolutely
1: ridiculously safe. Yeah, right. Like we yeah. we. You, you talk to people who work in other parts of the world, and you realize like we are ridiculously safe, we're ridiculously comfortable, and as a result, we start to think, you know, well, I mean, th- things aren't that dangerous. And you know, I mean, Portland and Seattle and San Francisco being the kind of most three favorite whipping boys for the, you know, the the country, definitely for law enforcement. And it is, it's like they're very comfortable, they're very safe. Like, oh, well, it's too bad that these people are criminals, and we should we should try to do something socially to save them. Yeah. And and that's because you're sitting at the top of the Maslow triangle. Yeah. Right. You know, Maslow hierarchy of needs. You are way up in the self-actualization portion of the program. You're no longer in the I can't eat and I, I don't feel safe and somebody's trying to kill me right. stage.
0: Yeah. You you have never had to hunt for food to survive. You've never had to build anything necessarily. Um, You know, housing's always been provided. There's food readily available everywhere. you you do the, but it's primal. You, you need to find something to be stressed about to keep your body at at, at peak condition, so to speak. And when you don't have that stress, you're not worried about, you know, a tiger coming out of the bushes and, or, or having to get the next meal to survive. Well, that's why we're all
1: fat and lazy too. I mean, it's, it's right there. There's a, there's a kind of causal loop here. I think the problem is that we are so far removed from violence that we forget how violence actually happens. And and I'll give you an example. Um, We just had a guy uh, named Jordan Robinson shot in our armor. Jordan's a SWAT cop in, in San Bernardino, California. And they are taking down a guy who the day before ambushed a deputy sheriff and fired 35 rounds or 33 rounds of an AK 47 into the patrol car. Somehow the cop doesn't get hit. Damn. Yeah. It's better to be lucky than good. Hell yeah, it is. Um, I mean, he gets damaged to his eyes from the glass and the car catches fire and and all that. But so that's that's who they're going for, right? Like this guy literally was in a pursuit, pulled over, jumped out, opened fire on the deputy. They find him. A SWAT team goes to take him down with a van and a vehicle takedown. He jumps out of the car and in 3.5 seconds fires 10 rounds at the team Hits Jordan eight times, hits Chris Shipley once and three and a half seconds after they bump the car. The entire event from the the van bumps him to he's dead in a field. Chris is is putting his own tourniquet on Jordan to save Jordan's life, even though Chris is also shot, takes his tourniquet, puts it on Jordan. Um, that's what a hero looks like if you were keeping track at home. but uh, that entire event is 22 seconds.
0: Damn.
1: Right. So so we have this idea from TV that violence it develops over time and the guy pulls the gun out and he points a gun at the cop and there's a bunch of words exchanged and then a shot. is, ex- And that is not how real violence happens. Real violence happens very quickly. So as a society, we need to accept that that law enforcement always have to put themselves at a tactical advantage. I don't care whether you're pulling over grandma or an eight trade gangster crip. You've got to be in a position that if they do try to do something, you have the ability to flee, the ability to shoot, the ability to do all kinds of things. And I think that law enforcement has done a terrible job of educating the public on what that actually looks like, right? We see these violent things happen and we hear about them, but we don't actually see them because we censor them. We don't want to watch. Nobody wants to watch kids being killed in in Uvalde. And, and, And certainly the families don't want to watch that. But because we never have to watch it, we're removed from it. And that creates a false perception about what's actually happening. Yeah. And I think that we need to do a better job of of taking reporters and taking community activists and saying, hey, come down and go through a fat simulator with us. Come down and do force on force. We're going to come down and have you do, you know, let's do patrol stops. And nine out of ten times it'll go great, and the tenth time the guy'll shoot you when you walk up to the window, right? That that's where we're failing, and because law enforcement has taken a position of being quiet, is the only way I can describe it, right? It's it's very dangerous for law enforcement to engage the media. It's 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 a you know there's there's no matter what you say, you could say ninety nine smart things and one stupid thing, and the one stupid thing will be what the media run with. And so, as a result, law enforcement has taken a reactive position and not taken a proactive position with the media. And I think that it's led to the community not really understanding what cops do, not really understanding what tactical situations look like and how they work. And and the expense of that is that the community has a misperception. Now, I think if you look at San Francisco and Portland, um, you know they're they're tired of of bums sleeping in people's front yards and shooting heroin in their driveways and pooping on their lawns and stealing and like, you're starting to see people go, Oh, Oh, maybe this wasn't a good plan. But I think that we need to see a much more proactive approach from law enforcement to battle the misunderstanding. And that was honestly part of the Genesis for the podcast was my frustration with these kinds of situations and how we're not dealing with them head on. And, and, and you have an, and, armed adversary in the activist groups who are, right? They're sitting around waiting for you to do, they're waiting for George Floyd. Yeah. And when George Floyd happens, they already have a strategy. They already have litigation that's been prepared. You know, they've already got legislation to propose. and, And so it happens and law enforcement gets very quiet about it. And law enforcement doesn't want to attack other law enforcement. And so the, the perception of the public is that this is how cops are acting. And look, they're not even denying it.
0: Hey, Eric Levine here from Two Cops, One Donut. Would you like to accelerate your investigations? Would you like six months of free access to a solution that will help you solve cases faster? And stop what you're doing and listen to the end of this ad to hear about this free offer exclusively for my members of Two Cops, One Donut. We would tell you right now, but you know those people in marketing would be upset if you didn't hear a pitch. All right. Who is Finder Software Solutions? Finder Software Solutions was built on the idea that crime and those committing a crime do not stay within jurisdictional boundaries boundaries. Yes, I'm talking to the cops out there, so pay attention. Finder's mission is to assist public safety agencies by developing affordable user-defined software applications that facilitate collaboration between law enforcement personnel to close more cases faster. That's really all you need to pay attention to. Close more cases faster. They've been in the business for nearly 20 years and currently support over 300 agencies sharing billions of records annually. Are you guys still listening? Of course you are, because you guys trust me. So listen to me. If you're interested in Excel your investigations, then discover Finder for law enforcement, the ultimate solution for agencies revolutionizing information sharing and investigative lead generation. Experience a seamless integration of RMS, CAD, JMS, and numerous digital databases, sitting alongside valuable resources like public records, facial recognition, criminal records, LPR data, vehicle information, booking images, and so much more, in one easy to use investigative platform. Finder allows for efficient data sharing, unveiling investigative leads leads and criminal patterns, ultimately solving cases faster, enhancing interagency collaboration. Empower your department with comprehensive, single-pane information system and redefine the way you solve crime today. All right, guys. Now that we've checked the boxes from the marketing team, back to the free stuff. Finder is giving away six or half a dozen, insert your corny donut joke here, yes, that is six free six-month trials to the first six agencies that reach out and say you heard about it on the Two Cops, One Donut podcast. This is a limited-time offer and will only be available for its first six agencies. So contact Finder at findersoftware.com backslash 2 cops one donut all spelled out or call them at finder and let them know you heard about it on the podcast get signed up with finder and start closing more cases it's that easy yeah now and it's a trap I, i i will add to that from our side of the house um as an instructor uh for three years we would have a new class come in and within the first week one of the things we ask them how many of you have been in a real fight not you know punching your brother a couple times in the living room, but been in a real fight, the adrenaline, all that. And I would say probably back in the 90s, you know, you would have got, I would say probably 60% had been in some sort of fight. Fast forward to today when we have trouble recruiting and the, the, the pool we are pulling from is even less removed from violence. And to go along with what you're saying, now you ask, you're lucky if you get two people out of a class of 60 people, you know, that's about the size of the classes we had that had ever been in a real fight. Yeah. And, and then you don't even know if out of those two people that raised their hand, if, if, if it was a legit fight, maybe it was a real fight to them, but, um, you never know. So now well, to add, add to that, that you now can't,
1: you can't have them fight in the academy anymore in a lot of places well not in texas sir we yeah fight. no i know yeah, I, I, I understand
2: that but there are yeah. other states I, I, right
1: there, there are other countries than texas Yeah, they're, they're... Uh,
0: <laughs> but
1: no i mean like in in other states yeah you have eliminated fighting in the academy yep because people get hurt and people get their feelings hurt i mean there was an academy in the state of california that for a while was giving people yellow
0: cards <laughs> like soccer
1: Yes. So if you were, if you felt that you were being bullied or harassed, you could raise a yellow card to make the drill instructors back off.
0: Listen, folks, if you're listening to this and you think that that is somewhat a good idea, you are setting your police up for failure. And here's why, because the Academy is the safest environment they're going to have the rest of their career. Because as soon as they get out there and have to deal with the real boys and girls in the crowd that actually do mean to do them harm, if they can't handle it in the safest environment, in the safest time of their career, they are not going to be able to handle it when they get out to the field. So you were doing them no favors. They need wait, the stress inoculation. Wait, you
1: mean you mean the yellow card doesn't work
0: on the crook, <laughs> right, <laughs> sir? I'm going to need you to hold on. Yeah, feel, hold up just a minute here. You are offending.
1: I me. feel a little
0: stressed out.
1: Yeah, uh, but the thing okay. is, like that's that's where we are, right? As a society, we're safe. We feel safe. Yeah. and we don't understand that there is a predator class, right? There, there. Yes, there are people that are socially disadvantaged. There are people that have drug problems. There are people that have come on to hard times, like all of that. There is also a hardened predator class of people who make a living victimizing people, and those people are willing to shoot cops. They're willing to fight. They're willing to do difficult things, and that's where we have to have built the stress inoculation we have to have built the resolve we have to have built the fighting skills the shooting skills to deal with that and yeah it's it's rare
0: yeah right events
1: like uvalde are rare Yep. but i don't think i don't think anybody including the guys who
0: responded to uvalde feel good about what happened in uvalde no and right and and i they didn't they did almost everything right they got the hell in there they didn't hesitate but this is goes part two of of training, how many officers have ever actually felt what it's like to have an AK, a two-two-three shot near you inside, inside of a, cl- a very narrow space? That shockwave alone will jar you if you are not, if you've never faced it. Now you can go out in the field and shoot an AR all day long. It is not the same as being having something with that high velocity shot at you. It could be a pistol indoors. Towards your direction. Now, I'm not saying that police departments need to start shooting rounds at the cops so they can get that that stress inoculation, but it is jarring. One of the things that our academy does is our, our SWAT guys. They have a um a 357 that they will shoot these big ass blanks, and you'll be set up in a building and you're clearing and stuff. And if you don't clear correctly, they shoot it behind you. No oh boy. And that concussion. I mean, I. I jump thinking about it. Yeah. And then you're trying to, you got to win your mind over to go into a room or behind a closed door with a guy that's shooting that thing at you. That is a wake up call. And I think part of that has to do with Uvaldi. is they're hearing these rounds and there is a mechanism in the body that you have to train to fight over what your brain's telling you. Your brain's telling you, get the fuck out of there because you at, you physically feel the concussion from these rounds. Even though they're not hitting you, you feel it. And the body is telling you do not go in there even though you know you need to. So, you, well, ag- aggression is
1: a trained response. Absolutely. Right? Like the majority of people default to flight. Not yes. fight. And, and and so, you know, we we to to have effective law enforcement in those situations, we have to have subjected you in training to enough situations that one, we know that fight is, is in your menu because there are people that fight is not in their menu. Yeah. Right. You see it in, in any of these major incidents, you see people where, you know, the, the long, the cops are hiding. Right. I mean, they, they get scared and and they hide Yeah, and they're not responding. And that's not, that's not a knock on them. That's a failure of training. That is a failure of us to down select to the kinds of people that we need who can respond to stress inoculation. You know, I look at what the, the top tier teams in the United States are subjecting people to. I was recently with one of the top teams in the U S and they were talking about their selection process. Part of their selection process was to have you run hard hill intervals, come into a very brightly lit room and then go into a tunnel that was pitch black, where you could see nothing and you had to move from one end of the tunnel to the other. And there were turns involved. Okay. And while you were in there, they started flooding the tunnel.
0: Oh shit. I'm right done. I'm now. Done. That's the biggest it, fear of mine is
1: fucking drowning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, now you know what you don't realize when that's happening is there's five guys with night vision down there watching you and the water's only going to come up to your mid knee, but you don't know that <laughs> right now. Now you go, Oh my God, that's ridiculous. That's unfair. When you look at what this unit does, that's a very real mission scenario for them. Yeah. Right. You look at any of our hostage rescue teams, any of our tier one units, like the kinds of circumstances that goes, those guys are subjected to. So they take selection very seriously and they look, they do psychological profiling, they do stress, they do all these things. We're not doing enough of that with law enforcement. And that doesn't mean that, you know, everybody is cut out to be on a SWAT team, right? That, that's okay. Yeah. But let's diagnose that, that before. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Right. Let's not diagnose that in the middle of the problem. Um, and, and, and let's, because it's, it's not, it's bad for society and it's bad for the officer, right? Like, I I don't know how many suicides will follow Uvalde, but some will. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. And, and I don't know how many people that that responded to Uvalde will be permanently psychologically damaged and have drinking problems and get divorced. And like, people don't understand the fallout that occurs with an event like that. And and so we're doing a disservice to both sides of the equation. We're not serving society, and we're not serving the officers. And, and honestly, it's it's not fair yeah. to not subject people to stress. And and you do it, you know, it, it's an inoculation, right? Yeah. It's small dose, bigger dose, bigger dose, bigger dose. Yep. Um, I recently interviewed a guy named Earl Plumley. Earl is a Medal of Honor recipient, Green Beret type. What? Um, oh yeah. Respect. And so so Earl is the most docile easygoing guy you'll you'll ever meet they he always desc-
2: are oh yeah and, he, <laughs> and he
1: describes like you have to listen to the interview it's like you know oh yeah and no, i felt something hit me in the chest and i looked down and it was a grenade and it wasn't mine and it didn't have a pin in it so i didn't want it so i kicked it out of my way like that's <laughs> that's earl um
0: get but, this thing out of here
1: yeah yeah And it's 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 like his 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 skill set is ridiculous but earl was in one of the worst it was an attack on a polish foreign operating base they set off a 5,000-pound explosive. 12 guys come in in Afghan national police uniforms, start shooting up the base, and Earl and a couple other guys end up responding. And Earl ends up going through multiple guns, running out of bullets. Uh, at one point, is out of gun, has no bullets for anything he's carrying.
0: Find a dead guy.
1: He sees an AK-47 on the ground, picks it up, realizes it's damaged, starts taking it apart, picks up another AK-47, Takes the parts he needs from the second AK forty seven, puts them into the first gun, and turns around and kills the guy that's chasing him with it.
0: So hold on, for people listening, <laughs> when shit hits the fan, the first thing to go is these fine motor skills, and the fact that he was able to pick up another AR AK yeah. and put it together in itself is amazing. Because I had Wh- been a while fucking running from wreck. a guy trying to shoot
2: him. Yeah, it's,
1: but the whole story is like that. Right, and so so I, I asked him. I'm like, "What do you think underlies your performance? Because it, you you have to read, um, take the time to go read the presidential citation for Earl Plumley, and and just just think about. I mean, it, it, if it was a movie, it would be you wouldn't believe it happened. Um, but I said, you know what? What what created that? And he said, I was stress inoculated by the time I got there. We spent a great deal of time. Doing difficult things when we were exhausted and pushing each other. I mean, he literally told taking his guys out on the range and saying, "Whoever shoots the worst today is getting tased." That's a motivator, right? <laughs> uh, or, or pepper spraying. No, I will take a tasing
0: all day over being pepper sprayed. Yeah, well, oh, he he, he used both.
1: Yeah, yeah, he used both. I, I'm, I'm I'm exactly the opposite. I would I'll take the OC. I I don't electricity in my body are not friends. I
0: would rather deal with five seconds than forty five oh. minutes.
1: It felt like ten years for me. Uh, <laughs>
0: worst video ever is
1: me screaming like a little girl. a <laughs> uh, little girl. <laughs> but but he uh, he you know he goes through and he's like he goes. We had drilled the fine motor skills so much. He goes. I remember them making us put together guns and yelling at us and going. This is going to happen to you and you're covered in honey and you're not going to know what to do and it's going to be dark and and he's like, damned if they weren't right. Yeah. And, and so, like, things like reloads, things like clearing a malfunction, all of that went away because he didn't have to think about it. And it allowed him to think about the bigger strategic picture of what he was doing. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a guy who ran, I mean, he literally ran into a crowd of 10 guys with AK-47s and suicide vests with a handgun. And one, by the way. Um, he got blown up three times in the event. Damn. Multiple grenades bounced off of him and landed next to him. Like it's, it's, it is the number of people that shot at him was insane. Like you just, it, I can't do the story justice. Yeah. Um, you have to listen to it, but it's, that is that stress inoculation. And he hit very hard in our interview that, that stress inoculation is everything. And we're not doing that with our law enforcement. We're not, we're not preparing you for the mission set that you may face. Partly because I think as a society we don't want to think about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Partly because it's it's unusual. Yeah. But if if we're not going to prepare cops, then we can't vilify them. Yep. We can't look at them after the fact and go, oh, well, they didn't. You know, they, they were unprepared and they didn't do that. Um, I, I think that it's 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 disingenuous for us to do that, and I think that we need to really look at the way we're preparing law enforcement. But for that to happen, law enforcement has to educate us.
0: Yes. Or when you realize there's a deficiency, Um, this is one thing that I'll brag about a little bit. One of the things I prided myself on as an instructor was taking current training and seeing where the holes were and saying, oh, we could improve here. And when you offer those improvements, the only response should be from the higher ups is, yep, that makes sense. Let's do it. Now, I get it if they got a, a logistical or logical argument against something that you're trying to come up with because, you know, you can throw ideas out all day long, but they need to make sense. But um, when it comes to this training, alert training, great training, I've been through it, um, love it. And, you, you know, there's some pain compliance behind it because if you get shot with them little paint bullets, the shit hurts, right? Yeah. But. The hole that I noticed, and this goes back to my academy training, was when the SWAT guys are firing off that big ass 357 or 44 mag, whatever the hell it was. I remember, I, I still to this day, I remember how much it jarred me, and that's what's missing from that type of training, in my opinion. Because when the shots are going out, you're you're almost working like a bat. You're you're <laughs> you're going towards that echolocation, trying to find that stuff. And if I come in and all I hear is beep, 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 like silenced weapons. That's kind of what those things sound like. Yeah. Um, you really don't see it. if you if you
1: make it loud then then people get offended and
0: you know, they won't go to the training
1: and they'll yeah. go home and complain about it. Right. And
0: but damn it, like stress yeah. inoculation, just like you said. I mean, yeah. another problem when you're talking about the fighting, um, you know, some academies don't allow them to fight anymore. There's there's police departments that won't let you use a closed fist in the writing on the wall is that it just looks bad. Now, we train our guys, you can use a closed fist. But we discourage you from using a closed fist on a grounded subject. Why? Not because of how it looks. Because more often than not, when we're in those situations, we miss. Or we're hitting a, a, a target that's connected to the ground. And, <laughs> sorry, physics are not in your favor. A lot of broken hands. It isn't so much that you're hurting the suspect. It's you're going to hurt yourself. So if you're going to give these these excuses of why not to use a closed close fist, at least make it make sense. No closed fist on a grounded subject. We're not saying you can't do it. We're just telling you we discourage it, and that's how our training is. We discourage it. Why? Because you guys keep breaking your hands, and now you're out of work for six, eight weeks. Let us teach you something different. You know, use the Stockton slap. You guys, that's the whole California move, right? Uh, Nate Diaz. So, um. You,
1: but see, you you go back to what you said. A very, very small percentage of people have ever been in a fight. Yeah. And they don't, and especially one where they really thought they might be killed or get the living shit kicked out of them. Yeah. And so they look at it and they're like, oh, well, you know, you just, all all you have to do is hit the guy one, one, you know, you just hit him once.
0: Yeah. The one hit later.
1: No, no. You, you win a fight by using considerably more force than the other guy did. Yeah. That's, that's who wins the fight is not,
0: you know, it's the guy that uses more force. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I remember when I was in law school, I had a professor who was very anti-law enforcement. Good Uh, for him. She, her, she, uh, (laughs) hairy armpitted lesbian from Oregon who, hated cops. Don't say shit when I'm taking a drink. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. I actually got a spit take out of here. Uh, and and she she actually ended up being one of my favorite people and I asked her to edit all of my articles because she had a very different perspective than I did. Um Thank but you. she was talking about the Rodney King case and she was like, I don't understand. You know, all these cops are, are black belts. I don't understand <laughs> why they can't just take this guy into custody. And I raised my hand and said, to a professor like did you say that you think all these cops are black belts? She said, yeah. I said, almost none of them are. They receive, you know, at most a few weeks of training on fighting. Like, and, but she was, she sincerely believed that, you know, now it'd be everybody's a, you know, a Brazilian jitsu black belt. And it's like, nope, no, that's not how it works. Nope. And, and you don't get to punch the guy one time and have him quit. Yeah. Uh, if he's, if he's a motivated adversary, you literally may have to kill him. Yeah. And, and you see that all the time in law enforcement, both in fights. I mean, I remember I worked on a case where an officer got into a fight with a guy who was dusted. He's on PCP. And he literally beat that guy to a pulp and, and caved in his skull, and the guy was still fighting. Damn. And And people don't understand yeah. that, like— human beings are really resilient. And if they're motivated, especially if they're chemically, yeah, (laughs) chemically, chemically suicidal, like it's not going to be simple. And, and I think that we, we need to spend more time talking about that. So then when it does happen and there's a little too much for, and and I'm I'm not saying George Floyd, because I have yet to meet anybody who's trying to defend George Floyd. No. Yeah. I
0: mean, there's, there's,
1: clearly a point like the Rodney King video. There's clearly a point like, like you got me, you got it. I'm, I'm yeah. willing to put a knee on a neck trying to subdue him. Clearly yeah. There's a point where he is subdued. Then there's a point where he's unconscious. Then yep. there's a point where he's not breathing anywhere in there. Feel free to take your knee off.
0: Yeah. I'm and um, I, I, I'm, this is one of the things I recommend to anybody that looks at a use of force issue. First, watch the video muted. I, yep. I don't, I don't want you to hear anything. Uh, yep. the, the, the least you know about the situation, the better yep. watch it muted. And, and I challenge other cops to do this. This is how I would review use of force that would come up the, the pipe, you know, for for my job as a use of force person. Um, I would watch the video muted because I don't want to be biased on anything. I just want to see the actions. Um, so that's how I'd watch it the first couple times through if I needed to, you know, more times. But I'd watch it and I watched the George Floyd thing and I'm sitting there and I'm like. All right, I'm um, I'm watching the way that this guy's shifting his weight, you know, at first even though his leg was over the neck, I'm like, "All right, I see that he's he's got his body weight over his his toe, not his knee." Like I'm seeing the shift and then there comes a point where I see him looking over at the crowd and the the weight distribution shifts and it doesn't go back. And I'm sitting yeah. there and I'm like, "All right, dude, what are you doing? What are you doing?" And I'm like, "What the fuck?" So then I listen to it and I my opinion is that was more about the crowd. He was trying to tell, show them that they are not going to tell him how to do his job, and he was showing out a little bit for the rookies that were there, and saying this is how you, this is how you handle this shit, and it fucked him as it should have.
1: So, yeah, as it should have, and yeah. that's that's the thing is like in the end, um, one thing I concluded while I'm while I was in law school and and working on con law cases is I'm a constitutionalist. Like people yeah. forget that the constitution doesn't die on the hill of the federal government. It dies at the local law enforcement level, right? It wasn't the SS that rounded up the Jews, right. It was the local police. Yep. So like we, we do need to look very carefully at our government. Anytime our government uses force, we need to look at it and say, was this reasonable? Was this fair? We also need to give the benefit of the doubt to the cop because he's in a difficult situation. We know, you know, retrospectively, that George Floyd wasn't going to fight anymore. You don't know that when it's happening. Right. So there there does have to be a certain presumption of of kind of innocence on the part of the cop. But the, the challenge for law enforcement is we've kind of gone away from subsequent or remedial measures. Right. We've kind of gone away from I remember when I started my career, you'd go to a debrief and the debrief would be this very candid, open. Here's what we screwed up. Yeah. That's changed.
0: Yeah. We call them TAC debriefs. Yes. I mean, and that,
1: that, that has changed now. Yeah. I, My I unit
0: still it. does those. We it's a religious thing. I mean, and but that, see, that's a,
1: that's a cultural thing. And we, we, because we're going back and murdering everything a cop does after the fact, we're putting the agency in a position where we go, Oh, you know, George Floyd happened. Okay. That entire department is bad. All those cops are criminals. They're all yeah. racists. And so we, we put the department in a position where it has to defend itself. Um, you know, recently there was a dynamic entry, no-knock dynamic entry in Houston that went very sideways. And to the credit of the chief, he came out and said, yeah, no, this is not okay. Yeah. But we're not seeing that that much. You know, when Brianna Taylor happened, we, we didn't see the department come out and defend their actions. And, and what was unfortunate about that was that a false narrative became the story.
0: Can you and, can you give a little background on the Brianna Taylor? Uh, yeah, story? absolutely.
1: So, so you know, I, I I had heard it kind of like like you did, like everybody did on the news, and and it was reported as uh, cops serve a warrant at the wrong house, and yeah. they shoot an unarmed black woman in her bed.
0: Yeah, and, they were there for the boyfriend. Um, the way that I heard it was uh, the cops are at the door, and a, a a bullet comes through at them through the door. And so they fired back through the door. That's what I was, That that's yeah. how I remember hearing it. Yeah. It kind of,
1: it kind of broke down into a couple of narratives. It, it, it broke down into like, they were at the wrong house. They were, they shot her in her bed. Um, the, the, the boyfriend fired a warning shot. Um, so I, you know, as typical of, of the podcast, if something I think has value, I will dig into it. And I did, I read every report. I looked at every video, every picture I talked to several people involved in the incident, and ultimately I interviewed John Mattingly, who was the sergeant that led the operation. It is a complicated situation. There is a lot going on, but but the, the basic facts are that the police department is serving multiple warrants looking for a guy named Jamarcus Glover, who is a drug dealer. And one of Jamarcus Glover's known associates is Breonna Taylor. It's his ex-girlfriend. They've known each other for a long time. She has billed him out of jail a couple of times. Um, she has rented a car for him that was subsequently discovered with a body in it, um, which she said was stolen. Um, he has been caught on, on uh, jail audio saying that she's holding his money for him. His, her address is the address he's using for his cell phone and all those things. So that's why she is a target of the investigation. The department decides to serve to go get Jamarcus Glover. They're broken up. She has a new boyfriend named Kenneth Walker. Kenneth Walker is is living with her at her apartment. Police don't know this. They have a no-knock warrant for all of the sites. And the reason that they did a no-knock warrant was so that they would have the ability, if Jamarcus Glover was there, they would have the ability to go in no-knock. They made a decision before they get to the location when they do the briefing that it is going to be a knock-and-notice warrant. They bang on the door for somewhere between 30 seconds and a minute. Um, the consensus seems to be around 45 seconds. Um, initially just banging on the door, eventually announcing themselves, you know, police department search warrant. Uh, there is at least one neighbor who comes out from upstairs who's a guy picking up his daughter. He comes out onto the porch. It um, starts having an argument with the police when he does. Um, he eventually goes back into his apartment. So obviously the, the knock and notice is working on somebody. Uh, Brianna Taylor is asleep in bed. Kenneth Walker's in bed next to her. They, he hears it, gets out of bed. He has a legal firearm. He is, he is lawfully authorized to carry a firearm, has that firearm. She wakes up, gets dressed. He gets out of bed. The two of them are standing in a hallway at the end. So when the, when the team, if you picture the apartment, um, it the front door opens, then it goes down into a hallway, and there's two bedrooms at the end on the right-hand side. Um, so there's a long straight hallway that comes out of the front door. When the police department breaches the front door, Kenneth Walker fires one round, um, which, which has been described as the warning shot. The okay. warning shot strikes John Mattingly, the sergeant who who is leading the effort, in the thigh and hits his femoral artery. So if it is a warning shot, it is one hell of a warning. Um, He returns fire. Uh, Another officer next to him, Miles Cosgrove, detective next to him, returns fire. Mattingly fires, I think it's four rounds and then two rounds. Cosgrove, I think, fires 16 at that point. Kenneth Walker dives back into the bedroom. So he fires one round and then dives back into the bedroom. Unfortunately, Breonna Taylor was on the other side of the hallway. So she is probably trying to move back into the bedroom as they return fire. They hit her either five or six times. There's been some kind of conflict in what's been released. Okay. Um, and and she dies there. Uh, eventually, you know, they pull Mattingly back, uh, put a tourniquet on him. I would encourage everybody to look up the video of Mattingly bleeding in the driveway and the medical response that he got because that's a, a, a good training argument for why you need TCCC. But – when that happens, another officer named Brett Hankison moves away from the front door and begins dumping rounds into three rooms down the side of the apartment. Now, by most accounts I've heard in, in looking at pictures and video, uh, those windows are covered. He believes that they are in a firefight and is trying to provide supportive fire um, but those rounds are not shot specifically at people. What he was seeing for muzzle flash were probably his own guys. It Had to be his own guys. Kenneth Walker fired one round. Okay. Um, and so he's in, he's in a gunfight that he thinks he's in a gunfight and he's not. And the rounds that he fires go into an adjoining apartment. Thankfully don't hit anybody. Um, and and so that's, as I started to dig into it, you know, it's, it's racist cops, no knock warrants, uh, wrong house, killed in her bed. Um and in fact I, I I didn't find any of that when I when I investigated and talked to people. Um it's and don't get me wrong, this is a tragedy. She should not be dead. And and there's certainly arguments to be had about no knock warrant, you know, I mean they knocked a notice, but there's, you know, questions about dynamic tactics. I think there's a lot of things to discuss. They're based on federal charges that have been filed, there were officers that lied to get the warrant beforehand, uh, the federal government, the state charged Brett Hankison with wanted reckless endangerment. Um, he was acquitted at a state trial. The feds have now charged him federally, um, which I, I think there's at least a, a very colorable argument that that's reasonable. Um, I, I, whether that's a question of you know that he was inadequately trained, I think is a separate conversation that that needs to be had. Okay. But um, as that narrative starts to run, you have LeBron James, Alicia Keys, Beyonce, Oprah, um, you know, the mayor of Louisville, um, all spouting how the police department killed an unarmed woman and they killed somebody in her bed. And uh, Kamala Harris at that point is a vice presidential candidate. She says on national television that they served the warrant at the wrong house. So, I mean, there is a huge false narrative that runs while this is all evolving. And, and unfortunately for Louisville PD, this happens two months before George Floyd. So you had Ahmed Arbery happen, then Breonna Taylor, and then Benjamin Crump picks up the Ahmed Arbery case. And then George Floyd happens, and Benjamin Crump picks up the Breonna Taylor case, and it goes viral. And so the two are conflated so that we look at it and we go, well, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd are the same thing. And obviously they're not. Yeah, But that's the narrative. And, um, you know, by the time you're done, these officers are moving their families five or six times because they have credible death threats. Uh, The department, to some degree, washes their hands of the whole thing. And the new chief of police comes in and says that, you know, what happened was wrong. The mayor says that. I, ironically, the only guy that really kind of sided with the officers was the attorney general. Really? Yeah, who who refused to charge them despite intense political pressure, um, refused to, to charge them because, again, split it into incidents. The warrant being supported by a false affidavit is illegal and unconstitutional and needs to be dealt with. Yeah. The officers executing the warrant have nothing to do with the obtaining of the warrant. They're right. serving a lawful warrant signed by a judge,
2: yeah. in, good in reliance yeah. in good faith. Yep.
1: They breach. They, they knock a notice. They breach the door and are shot. Right. So they're returning fire. Yeah. So their their actions are constitutional. They, I wrote an article a while back about a case in L.A. and it's like just because a tragedy occurs doesn't mean an injustice does. Yeah. Right. And so I think this is one of those cases where you really have to dissect it and we need to look at it piece by piece. And and the, the problem is it got so politicized that the real questions that should be asked don't end up being, being asked. And law enforcement has to take such a, an aggressive defensive posture that nobody stops to go, wait a minute, should this have been a dynamic warrant? Could we have not been noticed or called her and said, "Hey, we have your house surrounded. We're here to execute a warrant. You need to come out." Which is the way most major cities would handle it. Yeah, and
0: and then it goes into experience. Um, so one of the tactics I like to use is I'll call our person of interest and say, "Hey, it's Detective such and such. We're uh, we need to talk to you about something. We're uh, we're headed to your place. We're about uh, twenty minutes out." even though we're already there and we're already set yeah. up. And then inevitably, they they walk out the door, they're, they're going to get in their car to get the hell out of there. And you've taken them out of that tactical advantage. They're not inside their, their house. And you've caught them in that uh, intermediary area. And it's a, a more controlled uh, environment. Or you, you even wait for their car to take off. And then you go and you, you knock them down once they stop or you do a, a traffic stop, but you got them out of that environment. So that, that goes into when we talk about tactics and, and, and experience levels and stuff like that. I'm not going to say that these guys aren't experienced, but there are different ways to skin a cat, um, so to speak. And when you do these type of warrants, that's stuff you have to consider. So, um,
1: well, but I think, I think that, that for us to look at these things, we need to really, we need to look at the subtleties here and we need to have these conversations and dissect them. And I think that that's what's getting lost, uh, which is part of the reason that I wanted to address it on the podcast and actually have a conversation yeah. with John Mattingly and and do my own homework. Uh, and the funny thing about it is, you know, John Mattingly openly admits it's it's a tragedy. It's terrible.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yep. He
1: did not have control once Kenneth Walker shot him in the leg
0: no, you're absolutely right. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, everybody is a, is a, yeah. is a passenger on the bus once that starts.
0: Yeah. And we have, I don't want to call it a necessarily, but, um, most of the time our, our actions are predicated on, on the bad guy. Like yeah. we didn't, didn't set out to go shoot a gun at him. I didn't set out to do any of that. If they would have just turned around put the hands behind the back and let me put cuffs on them. Well, that's, that's the response. But, um, the moment you shoot at me or, Anybody else around me like now you forced my hand I have to do something a little more extreme. Um,
1: yeah, the su- the suspect gets a vote and unfortunately it's sometimes the decisive vote.
0: Right. And and her death is on his hands because he's the reason those officers fired.
1: Yeah, it it's interesting because it it that's true and I completely agree with that. And constitutionally I agree with that. I think the bigger question we need to have is was there a better way to do this?
0: Right. And that's what's not
1: I... let's not go on a witch hunt. Let's yeah. look at it and go, was there a better way that this warrant could have been executed? Yeah. And and were we, I mean, at that point, um, Louisville SWAT was already using containing call-out and in fact does on the warrant for Jamarcus Glover. But the narcotics guys had not been trained. Mm. And and there are seven guys on the raid who work in six different units who have yeah. never served a warrant together and are not trained. Now, Mattingly's very trained. I mean, John's got 2000 warrants by then. He's been a narc for a long time. He's got no use of force complaints. He's taken no discipline for force, never shot anybody. Uh, you know, the Supreme irony is everybody says he's a racist and I mean, his daughter is literally married to a black guy. And he's got two black grandbabies that he adores, Um, So if he's a racist, he's a terrible racist, Um, (laughs) but it's like, we just, we just want to just paint this as, Oh, it's just this thing. And it's like, no, it's not just this thing. Yeah. We need to look at these situations and go, what other options were available? And, and we do need to punish people that do things that are wrong. Right. Like, like Derek Chauvin needed to go to jail. Yeah. George Floyd was wrong. Yep. Um, but we can't just conflate these things into the same situations. We need to take the time to really take them apart and and look at um, what, what we can learn from them. And we need to get back to a culture of, of lessons learned and not blame fixed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's um, a, a recent example that I would have. Um, like I said, there's a hundred ways to skin a cat, right? Uh, some of the stuff you need to look at, and I'm talking to other cops out there is like, is it pressing? Like, is it imminent that you have to make this arrest right now? Um, I get that for no knock stuff. Like you, there's a bunch of evidence that lives are on the line and you gotta, you gotta get in there. Obviously you're going to lean on the teams that are, that are trained in that. You should not have a bad news bears, hodgepodge of cops that have never worked together. Go serve a warrant like that. Um, if time is go ahead.
1: it's interesting though, like even so the national tactical Officers association, I just interviewed the, the executive director and training director for the NTOA and the NTOA issued a position paper opposing no knock warrants last year. And the argument was, and I think it's a good argument that there is a priority of safety. You know, there's the safety priorities or priorities of life. We originally it was priorities of life. And then that was a little too offensive. So now we call it safety priorities, that, you know, an innocent is, is obviously the, the life of an innocent is more valuable That we're willing to trade the life of an officer for the life of an innocent, hence hostage rescues and all of those kinds of things. And that the life of the suspect is less valuable than the life of the, of the officer. And below that is evidence. And so the NTOA's argument is you never trade something higher for something lower. Like we never give up a hostage to protect an officer when we could have saved the hostage. Right. And their argument is, and, and, and like I said, I think I think it has merit to, to at least discuss, you never trade somebody's life, whether it's a suspect, a hostage, and, and you know an, an officer, you never trade a life for, for evidence. And, you know, I interviewed Phil Hansen, who was one of the original SEB guys and a board member for NTOA, and Phil said when we started, and Phil was around when Special Tactics started, we were using hostage rescue tactics for everything that we did. Because that was what we knew how to do. That's uh, it's all they knew, <laughs> and so when the war on drugs happened, that's what we did. Yeah, he said. But at some point, we realized it wasn't worth trading a cop's life for a bag of dope. Right. So that's kind of the question that, as a society, we need to we need to do that math, and and within police departments, and and I'm not saying that that you would never use dynamic tactics for evidence. Nor am I willing to trade your life or anybody else who pins on a badge every day to make a dope case.
0: Yeah, I agree. Right?
1: Societally, I don't I don't want to make that trade. Hell, we're legalizing drugs in most places. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I don't want to make that trade. Yeah. And I, I think that, that that's kind of the discussion that needs to happen. It isn't about reforming law enforcement. It's about looking at, as a society, what do we care about? And what are we willing to trade? Are we willing to trade a police officer's life to build a case? And originally, I think the answer everybody had was, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I've been to enough places where 25-year-old girls have received folded flags Yeah. to know that that's a really shitty case. Yeah. Like, I don't ever want to make that trade. Yep. Um, I agree.
0: There's very... I, I, I hate going around... The, I don't like using always and never. So for me, a no-knock yeah. is... Almost never necessary. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think the NTOA intentionally took on that position um, because, you know, their argument was that if it's a hostage situation, it's exigent circumstances anyways, and so you don't need a no-knock. Correct. Um, But I think that that they intentionally took a provocative stance because there needed to be a provocative, in their mind, needed to be a provocative stance taken. And I, I think that you know, we just need to start looking at some of these things and really taking them apart and making choices, not allowing situations to evolve where, you know, like in Houston, we have two homeowners dead and four police officers injured on what was purportedly a heroin dealing case. Oh, okay. And, and is now maybe not even that because they didn't find any heroin. And it looks like maybe the informant wasn't real. Uh, right. Yeah. Like we have to, we have to ask those questions. Yeah. Um, but we need to do it in a way that is constructive, not stand around pointing fingers at each other and yelling at each other constantly.
0: Yeah. You should find the learning points on everything. That's yeah. uh, that's, it's one of the things I like doing on this is um trying to get some sort of education portion out of it and then having discussions that people can get behind, you know, us discussing this um, people are, they're, they're going to learn a lot, I think, just from from what we've discussed and and considering different ways, one, to serve warrants and prioritize things and, and things to consider when they bring up an argument like cops shouldn't be serving warrants and doing all that stuff. Well, now you've heard some arguments why they should be done and why they shouldn't be done and how they should be done. And um, I can tell you right now, I've never gone to school where they're like, here's all the types of warrants and different ways that you can serve a warrant. Safely, or or things to consider,
2: like oh yeah, no,
1: it's it's the whole Maslow thing, right? Like the only tool you have is a hammer, you tend to view all your problems as nails, right? Um, Well, the corollary to that is cops don't have a choice; they have to take action. So, if the only tool you have is a hammer, all your problems are nails, even if they're screw shaped or whatever, right? And so, if if we want law enforcement to make better tactical decisions, we need to give them money and give them opportunities to train so that they have a bigger toolbox. Yep that allows them to make multiple choices because the thing people forget is cops can't just leave.
0: Yeah. Right. In most of these situations, once you
1: arrive, you're there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're liable for life safety, all that stuff. Um, that's why it bugs me. You know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, you, you, you didn't have to arrest that drunk guy. I'm like, what am I going to do with him? I, I can't let him go. Yeah, because if he if he goes off and kills somebody, well, now I'm liable. <laughs> Sorry, my family comes first on that type of thing. So uh, there there is there's a sense of liability and stuff like that. And you know, it, it can be argued. You know, when you think of car chases, they're like, well, they just let that guy go. I'm like, well, if I chase him and he smashes into a family of four in a car and kills him, is that my fault? Partially. Yeah, I mean, to go back to safety priorities, we're trading an innocent
1: yeah for a crook we're we're trading down right right yeah. and but it but you know I think it it also goes back to kind of how we are taking and sharing information, you know you said earlier right at the beginning of this conversation that part of the reason you did this podcast was because law enforcement wasn't taking advantage of social media. law enforcement was not using the medium available to them to share information, and I think that we, across the board, in part because cops can't talk to the media, but in part because we're not consciously trying, we're not capturing the the true lessons learned. I mean, the the, the origin story for my podcast was that one of our friends, who was a Marine 06, you know, Sergeant LAPD, amazing guy named uh, Tim Anderson. Tim was an integrative tactical thinker. He, he fused law enforcement doctrine with military doctrine. And when Tim got ALS and slowly died and we were standing at Tim's funeral and we said, you know, I said, how much did we lose today? How many lessons learned? How much information? Tim never wrote a book. We don't have him on video. We don't have him on audio. Everything in that man's head just disappeared. And we're going to learn those lessons again the same hard way that he did. And it led to a discussion about all of these great leaders who, you know, the, the really good ones never appear anywhere, right? The, the guys that are humble servants and and like they may teach law enforcement, we we don't capture them. We don't get video. We don't get audio. And so it led to a discussion about how we could do this. And one of my mentors, a guy named Sid Hale, who unfortunately died shortly after he did the podcast with me, um said, if you want to do this, you're going to have to do it yourself because we're not going to talk to the media. It's not safe. We have to know whoever we talk to we can trust. And so the idea behind the podcast was let's get these guys on audio or video. Let's capture their lessons learned. Let's capture their stories. Let's capture their wisdom. But let's do it in a way that is not destructive. Let's make sure that they listen to it and are okay with everything that's said and because it's my footage if they say something that could be used against them it goes away we we make good choices about what information gets in the public space obviously we don't discuss specific tactics we don't discuss a lot of that yeah but leadership and and the lessons learned from these events um you know i get emails and calls and all kinds of stuff from all over the country from people people all over the world people i've never met or spoken to and none of these guys have ever met Uh, you know, I'll get an email that says, Hey, this, this episode changed the way our team trains.
0: Yeah. That's why I pre-record almost everything. Um, because one, I I want the, the level of conversation to be comfortable and you're not walking on eggshells when, you know, you got to, like you said, cops, we have to be mindful of what we say. We can be shit canned from our department for, you know, what we say. Freedom of speech is great and all, but there are consequences to freedom of speech, um, and unfortunately for police officers, why not many of them do anything even remotely like what I do on here. Yeah. Um, now, fortunately for me, I have a badass chief. He backs what I do. Um, he knows and trusts and told me that he trusts that I'm gonna. I'm not gonna say anything dumb. Um, but even though I still protect myself, I don't mention our department, and I also pre-record. So I just in case my dumbass says something stupid. Yeah. Uh, I can. I can. Take or even that. something ambiguous.
1: I mean, that's a lot of times. You know. Uh, you know, do you still beat your wife? You know, <laughs> yeah. no. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, when did you stop? Right? Yeah. <laughs> like it, it, it's, it's, you know, or it, it's, sometimes you can say things that are ambiguous or can be interpreted negatively yep. and you, you by pre-recording, you create an environment where you can go back and listen to it. And what I do with every episode is I've got a handful of guys that are not, you know, I send it to the guest, the guest signs off on it. They go, yep, good to go. And I got a handful of guys that I send it to and I go murder this thing murder this episode. Yeah. Tell me where he said something that could be used against him. Cease says something you're concerned about. And it's everybody from a chief down to a sergeant Yeah, that I, that I turn to. And I'm like, I, I need you to tell me that this episode is not going to be negatively construed because we are taking on, I mean, you know, God, we're taking on Brianna Taylor. Like how much more controversial can you be? Right. My marketing people literally pulled me aside and had a conversation with me about it. Like, do you realize the reputational risk involved in this? Right.
0: Right. But if you stick to education and facts, you're not going to go wrong.
1: No. And in the end, what happened, happened. And the question is, what are the lessons learned? And, yeah. and so many of these guys have so much to share. You know, going back to the, the guys that have been in trouble, none of the guys that brought me up would have kept their jobs for three years now. Like the people we look back at yeah. and we go, oh, man, that guy was a hero. That guy was a legend. Those guys would have all been fired in modern law enforcement. Yeah. We would have never allowed them to get to the level of wisdom that they got. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. It's like, you know, none of the founding fathers would get elected now. Oh, God, no. Right. They would all all be pushed out. Yeah. And so if you you just stop and think about that from a societal standpoint, you go, yeah, people do bad things. But people also do really good things. And sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, people who have, you know, personal morality problems you know, do amazing things. And the founding fathers are a perfect example of people who punched way above their weight,
0: right. At their age.
1: Yes. I mean, they, they were, they were old men and they, you know, then they, they all had strong religious beliefs and they all had strong views and they created a country that was way better than any of them were capable of living at that point. And I I think in law enforcement, it's, it's very easy to go, well, that guy's stupid because he did this. And it's like, we have but in the process of marginalizing him. Yeah. You
0: are not learning. What he can teach you. Yep. Well, we're we're in the damn TikTok generation. If it's longer than fucking thirty seconds of attention span, twelve. It, yeah, twelve. Whatever it is, we're yeah. we're out. Like, and you you would not believe how many cops were like, dude, I love the idea of the podcast, love what you're doing, but you need to shorten it. You need yeah. to shorten it. I'm twelve like, seconds. I'm like, I'm not. It, it's either good content or it's not. I don't care the length. Um, if you're focused, the best podcast in the world, Joe Rogan's podcast, three hours long. Yeah. Well, Sean Ryan, I mean, to, to go more on point with our industry, Yeah, Sean
1: Ryan, I mean, Sean Ryan, I think this week was like number five or six yeah. in the world in podcasts. And that is a three and a half to six hour Yeah, deep dive into, you know, military tactics and other stuff. And the fact that his podcast is that highly ranked gives me hope that maybe we are starting to pay attention.
0: Yeah. So just, just in that fact, um, it's, it's crazy. I want to kind of touch on something. You said you, you have your people, you know, go over your stuff. Um, I don't have people, but just my experience, I want people to know like John's people were on my ass. (laughs) like, Hey, we need this link. We got to be able to give it to John. we got to do this thing. And I'm like, look, I'm a cop. I, (laughs) this isn't my main source of anything. Uh, I was like, I'll send it to him tomorrow hour before I was like, that's what I do. And they're like, you can't get it in here. I'm like, no, (laughs) I, I, I
1: I recognize my own short, my, my shortcoming is I am not a detail person. Yeah. And I am not a, like, you know, I do not make a to-do list every day. Um, and and as a result, I surround myself with people that do to make up for my weaknesses. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately,
0: well, unfortunately, we we keep touching lucky. on it. I want to I want to make sure for the people that just listen to this podcast. Uh, currently, I have John's podcast page up on the uh, on the video portion. So if you're watching this on YouTube or Rumble, um, I've got his his uh, thing up here. It's the debrief with John Becker. Um, if you want to find the website, uh, it's thedebrief.live. So T H E D E B R I E F dot live. If you want to find it, so um, and and go ahead and check it out um, on our YouTube channel. You'll you'll see I'm I'm scrolling through. We're looking through it all. Kind of walk us through here, John. What's uh, what's the page? So.
1: On? So, I mean, the the the, sh- the purpose of the show is to take lessons learned from law enforcement and military and bring them forward with an eye on improving operator safety. Now, obviously, a lot of our modern failures arise from leadership, so leadership is a focal point for the show. Um, we, you know, we're eighteen or nineteen episodes in, two seasons. Um, we've been very fortunate. The show's been very well received. We've actually made it into the top twenty. Now, made it as high as number sixteen. In the Apple Podcast charts for government, the last I checked, we were I think number fifty-four globally for government podcasts. So I mean, the show has done much better than I would have ever imagined it would do. I don't even know how to check for that. <laughs> um, I, I can tell you afterwards. <laughs> okay. But um, but it's it's you know the the goal of the show is to improve officer safety, and and you do that by bringing on better leaders by talking about you know, debriefing tactical events. Uh, one of the recent episodes was a debrief of the Bataclan hostage rescue in in Paris. And I had the team leader or one of the team leaders from the team uh, that that was on that operation, walk through the event and talk about decisions that they made and why they made them and what happened and, and, and the fallout, you know, uh, mental health is a big focus um, right now for law enforcement and military. Like we are killing our, our tactical operators and our cops in the way we're treating them and and the lack of support we're giving them. And so all of those are things that I, that we're picking up and looking at. We're looking at training and technology and just trying to, you know, I realized now almost 40 years into doing this, dealing with thousands of agencies all over the world and having access to a lot of people, I had access to a lot of really important thought leaders that would never appear in in the media, like we would never, I I interviewed Lee McMillian, who's the head of LAPD SWAT, one of two lieutenants that run LAPD SWAT, and and a stone cold tactical legend, deep thinker, amazing guy. There's no interviews of Lee anywhere. Uh, One of my favorite people in the world, one of the best tactical leaders I've ever seen. Um, But, you know, he's not somebody that's out teaching. He's not writing, didn't write a book. We're not going to learn from him. And so that's a lot of my goal is let's go, let's go take on difficult issues. Let's go look at critical incidents and and debrief them. And, um, you know, it, it grew in part out of our lecture series. We do a, an evening lecture series at Aardvark that when there's a big event, we'll hold a private event at Aardvark and invite in the team that was affected by that big event to sit down with, you know, 200 tactical operators from 75 to a hundred different agencies and actually spend time going through the events and talking about lessons learned in an environment where there's no cameras, there's no media, and, and we can actually pass those lessons along. So it's that, that is part of my personal mission is to pay back the debt of the guys that trained me and brought me up by sharing this information with,
0: with others. Yeah. um, So I've got aardvark pulled up as well. Um, I'm a big, uh, this is what, this is why I think I do get repeat customers as far as my, uh, podcast uh, guests go. Cause I like to promote stuff that I believe in. Um, I, I don't do a lot of homework on my people. Um, but as soon as I saw, this is what I knew about you before. I, I didn't know much about the podcast side. Um, but I did know about the aardvark and, um, Right away, I was like, oh, not only is he putting gear out, he's putting training out. And I obviously, as a former instructor, uh, I'm big into training. Um, Just like I love that you said any free training you would you would take advantage of. And I'm kind of the same way. As long as I got the time, I will I will knock out some training. Um, Good, bad indifferent doesn't matter Um, because we've been through some shit training before. It's a good.
1: The thing is, you learn it's, you know, even the, the stupidest person you talk to makes you smarter.
0: Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. But uh, the website is aardvarktactical.com. Um, A-A-R. Is that how Ardvark is spelt normally? Yeah. Two A's. It's, uh, a,
1: it's actually an Afrikaans or it's a Dutch word. Oh. So two A's.
0: I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I totally would have spelt that wrong. <laughs> I'm glad I a- said a- it. Here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm a John without an H in his name mm-hmm. and
0: my business is named Ardvark. I'm used to people
1: misspelling my stuff.
0: You need to slap your people when they send <laughs> text. Oh, John's doing this. And they spelled it with an H.
1: Yep. Um, no. Nope. Send me a list of people. Okay, I, I got will, their names. I'm gonna send me names. There They're will like,
0: we are not letting you do shit with Levine again. <laughs> there <laughs> um, will be beatings. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I, I'm actually very excited to check out your podcast. For one, um, I I keep my podcast streams limited. I I, I like Joe Rogan. Uh, for for my. My comedy side, I like um two Bears, one cave, they kind of inspired the name it's um, two cops, one donut yeah, and and people are always like, you know why is it two cops? there's only just you well listen i'm I'm still in the military, so I'm still a cop for the military, and I'm a city cop, so I am the two cops and one donut and uh Got so, it. so so that that kind of makes makes um sense to me and I don't give a shit if it makes sense <laughs> to anybody else. uh listen, the name's catchy, it's funny, and uh, that's my sense of humor so uh, I, I don't defend it. I just I like people to come up with their own things. Oh, that's like two girls, one cup. Well, that wasn't my intent. That's kinda gross. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that wasn't my intent, but it's funny and I'm shit, I'll leave it. I don't give a crap.
1: Like look like my my business is named after an obscure South African earth pig. I'm earth not pig, in a position. Yeah. Yeah, that's what Aard park means. Does it really? Yeah, Aardvark means earth pig. Oh. Yeah, I, I am I am not in a position to criticize the names of other people's businesses. And Aardvark <laughs> is a lot like a um armadillo, right? No, actually, nothing like it. No, that's what everybody thinks. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's so artworks are big. Artworks are oh, think like they think, got a think big, like long nose, right? Yeah, so so they're they're a, a family member of, of the of the ant eater, but uh, think think like large German Shepherd size, but heavier. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, South yeah, African yeah. animal, big mammal. Uh, the reason it was aardvark is I had people suggest names when I started the business, and I didn't want something that was like right on the nose with what we did. And so people suggested all kinds of stuff. And and as the business grew and do, began to do more military stuff, people are oh you should call it you know falcon, you know attack tiger, you know it's, it's <laughs> everything in our industry <laughs> is tiger. Uh, the whole damn industry tiger is King. like uh, it's like raptor birds. And, and large cats and like that, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's kind of the industry. And, um, a couple of weeks later when I was going to pick the name of the business, Aardvark stuck with me. Okay. Right. Cause it was weird and it, it, it has become a point of pride for the business because we are weird. We're not, you know, we're not a traditional distributor. Yeah. We do a lot of military integration, uh, we're not a traditional business because I was brought up by SWAT cops. So we're, we're more focused on our end user and end user safety than we are on making money. Yeah, Um, doesn't mean we, you know, doesn't mean we can't be successful. But like, our our mission is you know, we have one specific mission, and and everybody that starts at Aardvark, I give them, you know, the talk is you have one thing to do: protect the operator, and everything else will follow. But if you just focus on the end user, if you focus on the operator, so we're we're a kind of non traditional business in the way we look at things. And so it, the the name kind of fits. And what I realize now, looking back, is we're the only bark in our industry.
0: Yeah, you are. <laughs> and and once you learn the name, yeah, yeah,
1: you're never going to go. Was it like was it eagle, falcon, hawk? What was the name? Like you're never going to do that with bark. No. Yeah,
0: you know exactly what <laughs> animal it was. Um, yeah. So I want to. We're we're I think we're coming to a natural windup, but there's a, yep. there's there's one question in particular that's nagging me. You have surrounded yourself with, um, some of the coolest shit. It, it, some would consider in the world. It's, you know, there's, you know, how many millions of people playing Call of Duty. People have an interest in this stuff, right? Um, yep. And you are more involved without being one. How the hell did you avoid the itch? You know, it just was never there. Really, it just was never there. Like
1: I, I, I love. I love what my clients do. Like, I work with people who do amazing things. Um, I always say, like, it's very easy for me to find motivation for my job because I deal with people who put themselves in harm's way, literally risk their lives for people that they have never even met, and in some cases, never will meet.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I, I, I love my end user. I have never been interested in doing the job. And, and now retrospectively, like as the business started to grow, I realized that, you know, cause I had, t- I had teams that were like, Hey, you should come on as a reserve. Hey, you know, yeah. you know, come do this, you know, come be a technical reserve. And, and it's, it's, my answer has always been no,
0: um, <laughs> not it, no, it, but hell no.
1: It, no. Yeah. And it, the thing is, it's not, it's not cause I don't respect the job because I 100% respect the job and love cops and, and I'm grateful every day that I I'm able to, to do what I'm able to do. It's just, it's never, you know. I like. I like guns. I own guns. I carry a gun. Hell yeah. I don't. I don't love guns. I don't. There's not guns all over my house. Um. I don't. I don't. You can't move you know, to Texas then. I don't airsoft. No, I could still <laughs> pass. I could pass the gun test in Texas because okay. I, I do have quite a few of them, and some of them have two positions on the selector switch. But mm-hmm. um, I know in California too. What? Licenses. Right? <laughs> well, I've got every license known to mankind.
0: I'm
2: not at that uh, level.
1: You know, I've mm. literally every federal, I can't licensing. afford that yeah. level. <laughs> yeah. I wish, I wish I didn't have to, but, uh, but it's, it's, I, I realized that I am more effective outside of the machine than I would ever be inside the machine. I, I have an ability to do things as, as non-sworn non-military to, to host events that would not be tied to an agency to, um, host a podcast that's not subject to anybody's control, but my own. Um, and it's. I, I, I think that where I am, I can create a greater impact than I ever could inside of the machine. And so it's, it's just, it's never been there. But like I said, man, I, I, I love my yeah. operators. Just about all of my friends are in some way, shape or form, you know, in this line of work or, or the military side or the federal side. Um, and, and I am surrounded by amazing people every day, but, um, you know, it just was never, never in the cards
0: for you. Self-aware man. I like that. And I tell that to a lot of cops. Um, you know, I I talk to some people I'm going to do this for, and this is a very new thing I've, I've seen come to light. Oh, I want to do this for a few years to build my resume up and, and, and go into something else. I'm like, that is ballsy. You can't be half in on this job.
1: Yeah, it's not a job for people that are half in. And unfortunately, uh-huh. if you are half in, your likelihood of surviving, it goes down. Right. You're really setting
0: yourself up for failure, whether whether it be, I'm not, we won't even have to go extreme and say you're going to lose your life, but just being half in, like you're setting yourself up for liability, for failure, for somebody else getting hurt. I mean, it, man, you really, you really need to weigh and measure if you're going to do something like this, because like I said, I don't want a halfway cop. Um, if you... I'll tell you, man, the, all the years I've
1: done this, so 40 some odd years, I probably go to 25 or 30 debriefs a year, Really, which is where the name came from. Yeah. I mean, it, cause we deal with so many teams and, yeah. and I, I, I am a perpetual student of the game. Yes. Right? Like my job is not to be Tiger Woods. It's to coach Tiger Woods. Yes. And, and to make sure that he's hitting the best golf club he can possibly hit yes. every day.
0: Now, are you finding with your podcast and stuff that you are learning so much more than you ever anticipated. Yes. Like, yeah, Yeah, that's the addiction. That's the addiction.
1: So good. I mean, it's just one. It's taking me into conversations. It's taking me to a greater depth of conversation than I would normally have. Yeah. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show, I've had on the show because I've had a conversation with them in passing where I'm like, that was really interesting. But when you have 90 minutes with somebody or two hours with somebody, you can dig so much deeper. Yes. But but I will tell you the one thing that I consistently see in every debrief I go to, anytime there's an event with one of our teams, I'll call somebody on the team and go, tell me what happened. The one thing I see is the the guys that survive and thrive in events and after events are the ones that are prepared. The teams that are prepared, like you know, you look at the botaclon raid, which is I think the worst tactical situation I've ever seen. Uh 12 hostages or 15 hostages in a, a narrow hallway, like four feet wide, 30 feet long, two terrorists, AK-47s, explosive vests, barricaded door, and you're going to make entry. Good luck. Yeah. Oh, by the way, before you make entry, the bomb squad just called, and you can't shoot the guys in the torso because their vessel detonate and kill everybody, so you have to head shoot them all. That's... Oh, by the way, um, we're staging a second team just in case you guys get killed.
0: It's movie this is, that's,
1: That is literally the the thing that team makes that entry saves all those hostages both hostage takers dead only one of their guys gets shot in the left hand ironically the only left-handed guy oh um, yeah oh, murphy fuck. their shield takes 27 rounds yeah. from an ak-47 and the guy blows himself up and all the hostages survive and the only reason that happened was because the team that executed that bri was drilled beyond belief they were a ridiculously capable team who, who took training very seriously, who took operations very seriously, had been in these kinds of situations. And, and I mean, I, I always say like, you know, the, the guy that I interviewed who I really love, just a great guy, I said, a lesser man would have certainly died. In, in Earl Plumley's case, a lesser man would have certainly died. So I don't think it is a place where you can go in half measures. I think you need to be committed. You need to learn. And, and you need to, you know, prepare yourself for the situations you're going to get into because your survival will literally depend on it.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, sir, you got anything else? I think that's a, that was, no, it's fantastic. That was it's a good a great fucking place to mark to end on right there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Hey man, I appreciate what you do and, and anything we can do to help you. I'm always here.
0: Awesome. All right. Stick around. I'll end this and, uh, we'll chit chat offline. Appreciate you. boss. Thank you, buddy.